Hi, welcome back to another episode of Chris Dyer's Creative Friends, the super awesome podcast show where me, your artist friend Chris Dyer, talks to all his amazing creative friends. Today, I'm in my hometown of St. Petersburg, Florida. My good old friend Shrine was in town painting this tattoo shop and stopped by my house to paint up my stairs and have a lovely conversation in my own living room. He's an old school legend of the festival installation, street art scene, who's painted all around the world, has great points of views and perspectives. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Bless you. While the world is burning, got to make amends. Walk on the sunny side with the positive lens. Talks about passion between the women and a man. Chris Dyer and his creative friends. interesting too how like oh you know when you paint after years and years and years i mean your how your 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 capacity to do things increases uh-huh. where like that wall would have been so hard for you like years ago now you probably just knocked it out like uh-huh. easy peasy yeah i think that's i mean same thing with me too but it, it's it's fascinating how and i feel like you know it's sad a lot of people because they're just consuming all the time Ne- they never get to the point where they get to master something or are increasing their capacities. I did a painting once years ago. It said, increase your capacity to love on it. Uh-huh. Marcy Gray bought it. Oh, and, that's uh, so cool. Yeah, years ago. Um, and it had a whole, I did a performance. Thanks so much. I did like a 20-minute performance, which was a telling of a story. And at the end of it, the last line of the story was increase your capacity to love. And I hold the sign up. It was this whole story about how I was in Oakland building the temple for Burning Man in 2004. Uh-huh. And I was driving down the street and I saw on the other side of the street, like a piece of plywood that was had oil stains. It was splintered. Like you would never, ever pick it up, ever. And I was like, oh, you motherfucker, are you challenging me? I was like, no, don't do it. And I drove and I pulled a U-turn and I picked it up and I put it in my car. Like, no, don't take it. The whole time I was like, don't take this trash. Yeah. You know, like, because I make stuff out of trash, right? Anyway, and that's what I painted Increase Your Capacity to Love on it. Uh-huh. But there was a whole part of the story because we were in this warehouse in Oakland called American Steel. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Back in the day, it was a big, a lot of Burning Man installations were made there. I think it's gone now. But at one point, some giant man came in and, like, just picked up a generator and walked out. I was like, hey, yo. <laughs> I went after him. He started running. I started running him, chasing this guy down the street in Oakland. I'm like, after like a block, and I'm like, I'm not a runner, you know. I'm kind of like, I was like, wow, what, what are you gonna do when you catch this giant man who's ru- outrunning you? Yeah, carrying a generator. Uh huh. He's probably gonna what throw you, it on your what head. What are you gonna like? What are you gonna? What's the plan? And then I just stopped. I was just like, okay. But anyway. I, I, there was a whole like twenty minute story. I can't remember all the details. Well, and Marcy Gray bought it. Yeah, we were in, we were in Lucendasse together. We used to perform together. Really? Before she was a big producer. Wow, that's in Oakland or in LA? 
Yeah, she, um, Lucendasi was a performance troupe that came out of Los Angeles, started in 2004. I don't know if you know, I was a professional clown, a professional dancer. I did not know I that. toured with Panic at the Disco. That was the height of it. And then I bailed in 2006, and that's when that whole crazy adventure in Turkey happened. And uh-huh. I started just, I just went right into making giant installations. What years are these? That was 2006. Okay. Dream yeah. Rockwell started it. I was the first member. But um, Marcy was a, a part of it. And then Marcy did like installation placement for festivals like Symbiosis, Lightning in a Bottle. That's probably where you first met her. Now she's a producer for Meow Wolf. Uh-huh. That's cool. Yeah. Wow. And you got stuff on Meow Wolf, of course. Uh, they asked me to do something in Vegas, and I did an installation in Vegas. Yeah. And Carrie's in there, Recently, too. they had us out to Vortex Festival in Denver, and all the money went to Highway Sanctuary, so that was awesome. They made a, made a substantial donation. Yeah, that's awesome. And man. we brought out two 30-foot towers and the um, Love Machine Empathy Revolution installation by Dominic Snow, Elephant Man Sculptures. He did the first... He did the first um, residency at Highway Sanctuary. That's cool. Okay, so just so you know, we already started. Uh, we're filming, we're going, <laughs> we're rocking. Uh, thank you for uh, unexpectedly showing up to St. Petersburg, Florida today and visiting me out here in my home and painting my stairs. I did not uh, know that this was going to happen today. This is the first time I'm doing an interview without any preparations at all. We're just going to roll with the punches, so thank you so much for doing this with me, Shrine. Yeah, of um, course. So many questions. Uh, well, I, I want to ask you a question. Yeah. Do you, do you remember where we met and how we met? Uh, yeah, and I was going to ask you that, but I, <laughs> you came up to me in Australia at the Eclipse Festival 2012, right? Right. You came up to me. Okay, I came up to you then. Yeah, yeah. yeah Well, yeah. I was a fan of you. Right, well, you came yeah. up to me and you are like... I want to introduce myself. I'm a uh-huh. big fan, whatever. And there's a bunch of people, there's a couple people around. And I can remember, I was just like, dude, I know who you are. Uh-huh. Like, I totally knew who you were. And yeah. Um, yeah, I remember I, you knowing who you I was. had the big hair. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I totally know who you are. And the reason why I, I really liked your art so much is because I, the only Burning Man that I've ever been is 2008, and you did the temple for that one. Have you done more than one temple? At Bur- I'm sure you've done many things at Burning Man, but like the temple no, that burns. I only did it that one time. That was definitely enough. Yeah, and so that's my introduction to your art. And the temples are always very powerful because people put all their notes about their dead relatives and friends. So it, like, oh, yeah. it collects so much energy and power. Plus, your art is so... Your art's like a revival. Your art's kind of like you grab what is dead and you bring it into new life. And then Burning Man just burns and it kills it again, almost. Um, so many things well, to ask you, that, tell me about in that. In that case, yeah, normally I don't burn things. But um, <laughs> How and, do you feel about that? Like, <clears throat> Well, I'm okay with it. I mean, in the case of the temple at Burning Man, I was the first person to do it, other than um, David Best or one of his crew and Burning Man asked us to do it. So it just kind of happened. Um, but I also felt that, you know, the temple at Burning Man was an an incredible piece of work. Like my experience at Burning Man, that was probably something that I really, that was something that I really gravitated towards and felt had a lot of value. 
Um, and, you know, it's a big piece of art that people can come in and totally interact with. And so I was stoked to be a part of that. And it was interesting to do that and have that experience of working on something for four months and then burning it. Um, wow. But in general, I like to reuse things. I'm very interested in reusing things. Uh, and it, it's actually, you know, an impulse that has to be controlled because you can't save everything. Um, unless you want to be a hoarder, you can, you know. Uh, but or if I feel you had like, a, a big warehouse and just pack it with things nonstop. But I, 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 I move things, you know, the turnaround is pretty quick with uh -huh. stuff, I would say. And I also don't collect as much stuff as I used to. Um, but, you know, from time to time, I'll be in that mode. And it's fun. It's interesting to be looking for stuff, whatever it is. It could be things that actually have value, like an antique or some object that has a use or just something that, you know, people owned it. They bought it. They owned it. They don't want it anymore. They want a new version of it. So off it goes, either to their garbage out front or to a thrift shop or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I particularly like to, to make things out of uh, that stuff. So for people who don't know your art, uh, and I know you got different kinds of arts. I know you're a painter, but then you're also, what, like an installation builder? How would you describe what you do to those who don't know you? I make large installations out of trash internationally. Um, found objects, um, you know, the painting, uh, you know, it's a journey that I've been on my entire life since I was a little boy. It hasn't stopped. And so for me, my process is I make things and each thing that I make leads to the next thing that I make. Right. Um, and you'll, you'll have a relationship with, you know, subject matter or colors or shapes or certain kinds of lines or a certain style, and then maybe that'll turn into something else. It's a natural process that changes, right? And I don't have any problem letting go of what I used to make, you know? And every once in a while, like, I'll pull in a style from 10 years ago and I'll mix it in with what I'm doing now. Um, but I like that, and that's, that's how it is for me. It's like, in that it's a journey, I don't know where it's going. I don't know what's next. I don't have a plan. You know, it's always different. And I'm always excited when something new comes up. I'm like, ah, you know, or you have, ah, oh, you get a new, uh, a new idea. You know, if you're playing with triangles, I've been playing with triangles for years. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to just keep figuring out what you can do with triangles. Right. And or eventually, you know, they'll start to look like things. They're like, that looks like a Navajo blanket, dude. Like uh -huh. you're... You're, you're, you know, are you, is that your influence? It's like, no, it was, I wasn't influenced at all by that. Right. It was totally me playing with triangles. It has uh -huh. nothing to do with anything. Like this jacket is you playing with circles. This jacket is me playing with dots, yeah, uh -huh. completely. Nice. Um, yeah, uh, so, but the subject matter. So when I was um, a teenager, I was painting large abstract paintings, mm -hmm. completely abstract paintings. And that's what I did. I didn't do any figurative work at all. Were you self-taught? Did you go yeah, to school? Yeah, I'm totally self-taught. In my 20s, I started to feel that maybe I needed to, to be a legitimate artist, which is funny because I don't think that way at all anymore. I think that's ridiculous now. But to Why? be a legitimate artist, I needed to be able to create representational imagery. Okay. Right? And I, obviously, that's an important part of your work. Mm -hmm. um, but 
nevertheless, so I did. I started, I taught myself how to paint and do realistic figurative work and did that for years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, my first mural at a place called Wacko on Melrose, I forget how many years ago, it was a 10 by 20 foot wall. It was the first wall I ever painted. I had made a very complicated collage, all images. And I went up and I started painting it. And the first day I painted like the first two feet. I was just like, this is just drudgery. And I abandoned mm -hmm. the whole thing. And I made up the rest of it completely as I went. Mm -hmm. And that was great. That was when I realized, and from that moment on, that's why I don't do sketches. So when people hire me, there aren't any sketches involved. There's no, what's it going to be? Do I don't know. Clients, I make it up as I go. Do some clients say like, oh, I don't want you to come and paint my place unless I know what you're doing? Yeah, I don't paint those people's places <laughs> at all. And I'll tell you why. It's like uh, my, my process is not for sale. Yeah. And that's my process. I like to make things up as I go. Yeah. I do intuitive layering. Yeah. Right? It's not like it's that different than what you do. Let's say, you know, you're going to do a painting. You're going to do a, a sketch first, whatever. Yeah. But while you do that drawing, you're intuitively adding the layers oh, of whatever yeah. your vision is, right? Yeah. You so, and then out. you use that as a tool then to create a more complicated painting. You know, you're doing, you know, it's a different stuff. I'm doing a very spontaneous work, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of it at this point is gestural. So it's arm, painting with my arm, painting with my whole body, making a movement. Um, and I like that. I like the way it feels and I enjoy putting in those elements together. And generally, if I'm painting a building, I like to accentuate the lines of the building and that's how I work, right? Right. Um, but sometimes the, you'll hit a building where there are no lines. I'm like, cool, I'll make some up. Or that's anyway. a chance for your circles. <laughs> I'm, I'm the same shrine. I, I, I prefer to just tell the client like, If you like my style, just trust me and I'm going to show up, feel the vibe of the building or place and surroundings and then something comes to me and then I follow that vibe and that will be better than me sitting at home not knowing you, not knowing your town, not knowing the community and then throwing this thing that I made up in my, in my home, you know, it's different. Yeah. Why would you hire Chris Dyer to create a different vision than Chris Dyer's vision. So I don't create other people's visions. Mm -hmm. And that's what I tell people. Right. If, if people are like, we want to know what it's going to be, I'm like, I don't create other people's visions. And, you know, my process is not for sale. So mm -hmm. it, it did come up with a process, a project that I really wanted to do, which was this nine-story building in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm on the phone building an installation, and they're like, we want you to do it. We already came up with, a, you know, a number. Everything's good. What's it going to be? I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't do sketches. Like, you don't do sketches? Mm. And, you know, there's a person between the guy who owns the building. He's like, no way. This guy's going to paint my building if I don't know what it is. Right. I'm like, I'll tell you what. Uh, I've got nine drawings on napkins and paper bags that I've made, like, today, yesterday, the day before. Yeah. I'll take pictures of them right now on my phone. I'll send them to you. Uh-huh. They're not going to be this, but this is what I'm doing right now. Uh -huh. If you like this, it'll be in this vein. Yeah. So he agreed to it. Nice. And it was wild because when I'm up there on this, you know, huge scaffolding, nine stories up, starting at the top, going down, I think it was like the second day, I saw this guy on the corner and I walked up to him and he, and he was like, I own the building. <laughs> and, and he's like, I'm so happy. I'm like, okay, because he was really nervous. What is he going to do? Because mm -hmm. it's expensive. They already had this. See, the thing is they already had the scaffolding. 
And so they were like, can you do it now? And I'm like, yeah. And I flew to New York and did it. Mm. Dropped what I was doing because I really wanted to do it. But it's like every day that that scaffolding's out, that's like five grand. You know, the Union, was, New York, the guy, you know. How did a client like that find you? Uh, somebody that worked for him knew my work and just gave me a call mm-hmm. and showed him my work and he liked it. And Yeah, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that you don't like the serve highbrow clients who own buildings in Manhattan, but to me, you seem such a rootsy dude who's out there like traveling to Africa to paint a village for the sake of raising the vibes of this community. And, right, that know. also happens. But, um, you know, it's nice when there are people who can afford to hire you Yeah. And pay you to make whatever you want to make so that you can forge ahead and, and go to Africa. Right. Well, Mezzin's got to reach everywhere, you know, from the fancy people to the broke people. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, I also, I make these giant sculptures that you can't move. You can't sell them. There's no way you can sell them. These big bottle towers that I've been making, I don't know if, mm-hmm. you, if you're familiar, but... You can't, there's no way. And so it's just interesting because when you get into that idea, when you when you make art and you sell your art, mm-hmm. right? And that becomes a part of your process. So then it's like all of a sudden something comes up and it's like, do I still make art just because? And so when I make a, a 15-foot sculpture that can't be moved ever, can never be sold, it's like, that's a whole different thing. Than, well, that's real art. Well, it's, like it's art. It, it's all real art. But, you know... It seems to me like a lot of people do art, and this is not me criticizing anyway, but people make art as a product for sale while you're making art to express and channel this energy you have inside. And the whole thing of like, oh, who's going to like buy this down the road is almost inconsequential. Right. But behind me, we have a shelf full of toys that were a product mm-hmm. made by artists. Yeah. That is art. That is true. And you appreciate that. So selling something doesn't take away its art. No. That's true. I don't think so. Right. No. But do you think it changes the intention? Like, for example, the the people who invented Ninja Turtles, they weren't thinking like, oh, I'm going to make a lot of money. They were like, oh, let's make some Ninja Turtles. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, So maybe perhaps somebody will. You know, that's something that each artist grapples with themselves, you know, just like all the things you grapple with as an artist. Yeah. but I do particularly like making things that I know can't be sold. I'm in a different, I'm just enjoying myself, mm-hmm. right? And I enjoy myself anyway. Um, but I just painted a tattoo shop, right? Right. And it's all good. They were totally cool. Paint whatever you want. I'm like, well, I don't know what else to paint. So I'm going to paint whatever I want. And I did. <laughs> but, and they liked it and it was all good. But nevertheless, it's like when you're painting something and, you're there in a professional capacity, somebody is going to say yes or no or something, you know. Every time it's all good, you know, but it, it definitely changes what you're doing, you know. Where it, and also, I would say I'm often more experimental when I'm just, there's nobody involved but me in a wall, and I'm just painting it because I want to. Mm-hmm. I can paint anything I want. When it's not a job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I might not, you know, go off the deep end with something that no one's ever seen before when they do have, uh, you know, like a tattoo shop might have expectations of what they've seen that I've been painting the last 10 days or whatever, you know, that, you know, or whenever they hired me. 
mm-hmm. you know. But do, yeah, it changes a lot. I'll get tired of painting things and I stop. And I'll paint something else. Do you ever get jobs that you don't enjoy? Uh, or do you, you know, make from time to time, I mean, walking into a place that is pristine and, you know, there can be, for the most part, I enjoy myself mm-hmm. and that's what it's about. So you make it that you enjoy that job because you make it your own thing. As my, I'm in the business of being inspired. Uh-huh. That's what I do. Staying inspired. That's, that would be a question a lot of people would have for you. How do you stay inspired? I know how to do it for myself, but... It's, it's not an accident, you know? It's like, it's a choice. You choose to be inspired, right? And so it's tough because, as you know, the world we live in, we may not agree with what's going on. And we may feel really powerless sometimes when uh, huge organizations, uh, companies... You know, weapons manufacturers, uh, armies, milita- huge militaries are forging ahead. But like, well, who gave you permission to do that? And it's like, well, right. you did by, you know, you support this country. So, but, you know, there's all this stuff that's going on that doesn't make you feel good, doesn't inspire you at all. No. It's the opposite. Yeah. And so, you know, if, you know, everyone in the world is, is watching Gaza right now. And, it, you know, and I'm sure that, most people that are watching it are being crushed. You, you can feel the constriction in your chest. It's be hard. And that's the opposite of inspiration. Inspiration is a state of expansion where you feel open and you feel great. So, yeah, that's how my preferred state is. And so, you know, for example, my son Dylan killed himself October 11th, two years ago. I'm so sorry, man. It's totally fine. Uh, but... As an example of, well, how do you stay inspired after your son's killed himself? Are you allowed to be inspired? Can you ever feel good again? Like, there's a lot of questions. It seems almost like it's your responsibility to uh, hold sadness and guilt because of well, it. Well, you know, if, if it, I will say it is an opportunity when something like that happens to you in your life to, if you want to, to really explore what grief is about and get into the layers of grief. And it is your opportunity. You can take it or not. I mean, you know, ever since this happened in our family, I've met so many people whose, you know, friend, parent, lover, sibling, whatever, killed themselves. I've met all these people now. And you'll meet somebody who it's like 10 years later, and they are a mess. They can't talk about it. They're crying. It's like, and yeah, well, and, and, and that's okay. That's totally okay. I'm not saying it's not. But Yeah, you know, whatever. Everybody's different. And wow. how, how, whatever you can, whatever you have to do to manage that grief. So at some point, you know, you can only manage that kind of grief, grief so much. It will manage, you know, it's going to manage you. It's, it's like a deity. Grief is like a deity, actually. I imagine it's it a spirit. as a character uh-huh. that when it shows up, it's got a you need you. to get down on your knees and you need to pay atonement to that. You know, it's, it's very much like a deity, like surrender to the experience how that it's bringing you. religions will have gods and spirits that you, mm-hmm. you know, atone to. Grief is that. Do you feel it brought you a gift in some sense of speaking? Well, you know, you were talking about how I take trash and turn it into something else. It's not just objects. It's a philosophy of how to live. So for me, life is full of all kinds of unsavory challenges that I would rather not have. 
But every time they show up, it's like, well, this is your opportunity to grow if you want to do it. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can't grow. You just try again next time, you know, whatever. People make mistakes. It's all like, what is there to do but grow as a human being? Yeah. Anyway, staying inspired is something I'm very interested in. And so for me, that's staying in a state of expansion if I can. And yeah, sometimes it's really hard. And sometimes I'm just like, you know what? I'm okay with feeling not great. I'm okay with that. That's also interesting. Life is not one thing. Right. It's contrast, and that's good. You know, it's like death gives life value. Right. Right. Um, sadness, you know, exasperates joy, and you know it all works together. But I like to. I'm in charge of this mechanism. I can do whatever I want, right? So I want to feel how I want to feel, right? I'm not a victim to anything and everything that happens. I'm in charge. That's called living in choice. Right. I guess it's like a combination between accepting can... how you feel about things and you feel like, for example, you don't like feeling sad. You, you, what you're saying, I just want to... Go over it. We don't want to feel sad, but we feel sad and we accept it and we use it to learn what happiness is. And as you say, also, we got the choice to move past it, not stay in that place forever. We can move forward as long as we, um, you know, honor the also the negative feelings. So it's like a dance between both. You can't just like be like, no, I don't want to be sad ever. No, I don't want to feel guilty or remorseful or have compassion or pity for anybody else. We have to feel that. You order- can. People do do that. I think a lot of people are in denial. And my, I mean, myself included on many occasions. I mean, the human capacity for denial is amazing. Um, but, you know, I like, a, I like a more savory plate of life. And so... All the experiences, all the feelings make up an interesting plate of food, you know? Right. But, you know, again, it's like I can sit here in this beautiful house talking to you and maybe put myself in a state of expansion. If I was in Gaza right now and I was Palestinian and, you know, for me, it's the apocalypse. You know, it's like, oh, is the apocalypse happening? It's happening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is happening in many places. People have already experienced it. Their whole families are gone. They're, everything's gone. Right. And it's like, you know, can you be in an expanded state under those conditions? I don't know. Maybe not. This has been like my... my so that's privilege. My inner dialogue all these, all these last few weeks. Like we right now are mid-November and this might come out in like January. Hopefully by then it's done and things have not gotten worse. But for the last four weeks, I cannot not look and and that's fine you, you can't just like ignore it and be in denial and, and go la 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 with your life you gotta look at it but then like also like how can i live my life without carrying sadness and guilt but at the same time it's like but i didn't do that that's not my fault do i have to live in sadness so it's a very like being kind of like a interesting and difficult inner conversation with like what do I do about this when I can't do anything about it other than like communicate and express and resonate with other people who just want peace? Yeah. You know, clearly it's like if people are not willing to have some kind of revolution, people are not willing to stop working, stop buying, 
you know, it, this stuff is not going to stop. Like, it's just going to continue unless we are willing to not do our jobs, not, you know what I mean? Like, not buy anything. Just everything has to stop. It's the only thing you can do, you know? But what do you mean by not buy anything? Like, this is, you know, what about the, the food only thing. Or clothes exactly, or, all of it. It's like you just stop, you boycott everything. That's, that, if not, the gasoline thing is, to get so to many people are opposed, though. It's hard to get enough people on the same page, although I think probably all of us want the same thing, but we've been, you know, kind of tricked into choosing sides, all the different sides. Yeah, no, the division but, is a problem. But, you know, uh, whatever, it, it, it is, you know, I think that the whole people world... do have pretty radical things that they are opposed to, and it's hard to then, as a whole, because who wants this? What we're talking about, like Gaza, for example, and it takes a lot of money and a lot of stuff, right? A lot of weapons, a lot of fuel, a, a lot of, of people. resources and lives. In order to do this insane massacre, it, and, you know, ongoing, it's going all over the world, these things are happening. It's like... Right. It's not just there, but that's the one that is on our phones and TVs these yeah. days. I don't know. Uh, right before we bought the United States bombed Baghdad, right? I went to all the protests in L.A., took the bus up to San Francisco, was super into it. And I was just like, wow, on the news. They made us look like we were these agitated, uh, violent, immature, un-American people or something. Where that is not what who was there at all. That's early 2000s, right? Uh, before the invasion of Iraq? Yeah. Okay. Right. I and, was protesting too yeah. and hopeful that it would not happen. And, I mean, I was doing giant anti-war installations with fake missiles, all made out of trash, all this really wild shit. My work was completely different. And I kind of hit a wall with it. And I was kind of, also, the work that I was making, I was making, you know, I was painting big mushroom clouds on thrift shop paintings and whatever. Everything I was painting was anti-war. And then I kind of had this realization about my art, which was, why, I don't want to keep holding these images in my mind. So... I got into this idea of I'm going to create the world I want to live in. That's what I do with my art. And that's what I, and from that moment on, I stopped making all this anti-war stuff and I just went on the path that I've been on since then. But anyway, the, the point I wanted to make was, so even now when I see people protesting, I'm just like, okay, and what's going to happen? Does this work? Does it the, matter? They don't, who, no, it's not going to stop anything. Like, you know, the chain of command, like the military, people are, people do what they're trained to do and what they're told to do. And if it's, you know, and also there's, there's information. So some people are told this is righteous, do this because these people did this or whatever, you know, all this propaganda, all this. So what about this? Yeah. Trying? Yes, there's the powers and be. And it seems like, you know, if we protest or if we may buy things, not buy things, they still will do what benefits them. Uh, but what about like protest as a prayer or even a conversation as uh, vibes emanations? Like if we are just consciousness vibrating out reality, if we all can hopefully unite consciousness and pray for like peace, could that affect these motherfuckers that are just pressing buttons and killing mad amount of people? I don't know. Um, but what you just described is also what I call creating the world you want to live in. 
you know, and, and, and in that regard, the reality that you hold is the world you're living in, regardless of the world you're actually living in, right? Mm-hmm. Your state of mind that you are in charge of is your reality. So if you're living in fear or not living in fear, all those things, that's all going on in your mind all the time. Right. That's where reality is happening. But you're talking about, like, how do we affect the greater whole? And is that powerful? I mean, it's certainly worth the try. I mean, I do believe in those ideas, but at this point, I'm kind of, I don't know what to do. You Are you know? hopeless? Uh, I, 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 I don't, see, on one hand, it's like violent revolution. Or, you know, it's like, eh, it's I don't believe violent. in that, right? Yeah. You know, I believe in peace. So, but I don't know. For years, I've been like, where are the, uh, where are the um, elite hippie assassins? We need them, <laughs> you know? What would the elite hippie assassins do? <laughs> like go in there and poison your cup of ayahuasca? I imagine them as snipers. Uh, but, you know, anyway. But the it thing goes is against those, the idea of peace. Bad people are also good people who are just more gone down. I think a wrong that path. some of the people are not good people. I think that some of the people are psychopaths, if you will. But do you think they they got? <laughs> I do believe that there are redemption? some not good people in charge. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, but do you think those people are also God consciousness ex- experiencing the sure. experience? Sure. Oh, if you want to, if you want to get in on that level, it's like. It's, you know, a bigger version of what I was saying, you know, the plate of food that has all the different kinds of experiences from, you know, ecstatic joy to absolute misery. And that's what makes up an interesting life. So, yeah, if you if if we think that all that is, is one thing completely, you know, continuing to expand and the way that, you know, it works with contrasts and, you know, hot and cold, good and bad ideas, you know. It works with opposites, right? right? It's like magnetism, uh, how the weather works, like the whole system. I mean, look, I believe that human beings are super high-tech, self-replicating biological robots that can be programmed to be masters or slaves. I totally believe that. Mm-hmm. I didn't read that somewhere. I made that up, but I'm pretty sure that's what's going on. People are like, yeah. The robots that we're making now, those are primitive. This is the shit. Look at those fucking hands. Right. Dude. Unbelievable. We're, we're like building can I this be programmed? shit as we speak. We're like creating the molecules. This is can I be of... programmed? I've been programmed my whole life. They started programming me when I was a child. Your parents start programming you without even knowing they're programming you. Right. You can be programmed to be anything. Uh-huh. So when you get into what is this thing, this crazy system of systems ecosystems that all work together in this perfection oh that's god it's like is it god or is it just a really advanced system of robots so like a major biolog yeah it's incredible bio or you know is it some super crazy high-tech simulation that we that works with our minds and we don't really know how it works i don't know i'm open to that though and I'm, from I'm, my own feels like it sometimes you know research and development as you also do it's kind of like what is this what is this? All this stuff, this physical reality, what is it? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. But So what do you say in this? Uh, it's all connected, though, as far as I think it's all connected and it all works together. It's a perfect system unless you fuck it up. And OK, so there's lots of things I wanted to pick apart on this like <laughs> matrix uh, simulation. So if it's like a simulation, is there like a goal or is it just pure experience or 
Are we supposed well, to strive for some uh, objective? And also, um, so we have bad people and good people, quote unquote, and this array of flavors of humanity so that we can feel the contrast and know who we are in that, you know, plate. But maybe the issue that perhaps you or me could have is that there's an imbalance where the people who uh, choose to be bad are just fucking it up for everybody else. And those who want to be good don't even have space to live because the bad people just fucking destroy the whole planet. Maybe that's the issue, the imbalance, and not the fact well, that those people exist. If, if it is a simulation, if this is a, a, a manufactured, kept zoo, if you will, there is this idea that human beings are not at the top of the food chain and that human beings are harvested for their energy. And that's a whole other conversation. But Which has a set of beliefs also. Well, who's behind the curtain? Some kind of you it, know, the, alien yeah, this or is just one of many, um, you know, incubating planets that, you know, it's like this idea that there's 12 dimensions that all exist. We're in one of them. They all exist in the same space. You may have seen some of them yourself. I don't know. Yes. Or been to some of them. You may have uh, communicated with some of the beings that live in those other dimensions. Yes. Okay. So, you know. This isn't what anyone's taught. We're taught this science about what this planet is yeah. and, you know, and how it's made and all this. It's like whatever. Um, you know, there's other information. So as far as this idea that our human beings at the top of the food chain in this dimension, maybe not. Do you think we're being manipulated by <laughs> beings outside of our realm of perception? I'm open to the idea. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, I have had really you know, intense downloads where that was the information and I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> it well, was scary. Well, that would go more along some David Icke uh, theories, but perhaps, you know, the negative entities that we can't even perceive because they're from a different dimension and vibration influence the vessels that are open to that negativity and then are influenced to do actions on the physical world that then affect us all. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, why? Why else would we? I mean, what is the reason why we are com constantly bombarded with fear propaganda our whole lives? Nonstop. And we even make it ourselves. We're like addicted to it. You know, uh, like some time ago, it was a couple of years ago, I was like watching Netflix or something. And it just occurred to me, I was just like, what the fuck are you watching this shit for? It was some like typical blockbuster, violent, women being raped, some white guy is the hero. I'm like, what the fuck are you watching this for? Mm -hmm. I was just like, what? You know, and I, I turned it on. I was just like, and I started thinking about, well, wait a minute, there's a huge genre of this. This is, this is not entertainment. What is wrong with human beings? You know? So, look. I, I personally feel that the bulk of humanity is totally insane, and I'll tell you why I think that. Um, so when you get into this idea that, th th here's a totally normal idea. A totally normal idea is where you keep taking the natural world and grinding it up to make stuff you don't need, and you fill huge spaces with it all over the place. That's the height of normality, right? You've been to Walmart. It's the height of normality. It's completely normal. That's insane. People have no connection to the world that they are a part of. They think they are separate from it. 
right? And, you know, and this idea, where did that come from? This idea of a, a God that made this for you? Like, there's a lot of ideas that have been thrown around for a long time that, have, that the programmed robot just goes with, you know? And so, personally, I, I can't help but think that things have gone terribly wrong for the bulk of humanity when people think it's normal to fill endless spaces grinding up the natural world with shit we don't need. Mm-hmm. On and on and on and on. And it's like staggering. And if you travel, then you'll see it. And you're like, another huge city full of stores, full of, like, whoa, get on a plane, go, another one, another one. And how is the natural world? When is it going to stop? That's what I was. I'm like, how long can this go on? So perhaps, you know, I'm p- anyway, part of the problem too. Because, like, I look around and I look at my toys and my records. You're totally and, insane, dude. And, yeah. <laughs> <I'm just> no. <laughs> but we're all being like, you know, like that's my kind of like more artistic insanity where I need to look at a shaped piece of plastic and that brings some kind of like joy to me that connects to the way I felt as a child. And, you know, I know my, my boundaries, too, and stuff. So I've but, accepted that, that I am a part of a sick culture, mm-hmm. you know? And how do we... Uh, those things I also, you know, have grown up with, I, you know, born and bred to be a consumer, mm-hmm. right? You take satisfaction in the purchasing and the collecting of things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Cool. Fun stuff, right? Um, and it's all good, but, you know, it's good, you know, in your case, you have a nice balance because you are a producer of stuff. So you're producing, you're expressing yourself. That's good. That's healthy. I'm just saying as far as you being insane or not, right? There's a good balance. But like, <laughs> look, look, at the, look at the, look at there's a lot of people. What do they do? They watch television and they believe it. They buy the stuff. They do a job they don't like and they buy the stuff, and they watch the television, and they pay for all the bullshit, like insure all the insurances they need, and all the blah, 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 and they gotta keep getting the new shit so they can feel good, because you don't wanna be empty, out of step. You know, so you fill yourself up with stuff, you know? It's what the culture I come from does. There aren't a lot of other options. I chose to go in another direction. I insisted on being an artist. I insisted on it. How did you know that you had to be an artist in order to bring some kind of balance? Well, I, you know, it, it's just something that I enjoyed doing as a kid. And the reason that it happened is because my grandmothers, these very, very sweet older women, would say, oh, Brent, you're such a good artist. And they would hang my art up in their kitchens. And now my grandmothers were really clean people with beautiful homes and their kitchens were like the center of the house. The kitchens were their office. You know, the kitchens were their church. Mm-hmm. So to take something and actually, I always had a wall or a door dedicated to my art, my, their entire lives, that they were alive, that I was alive with them. There was my art, Brent Spears, drawings and paintings were in my grandmother's kitchens. That's why how I became an artist. Mm-hmm. I was just a kid who liked to draw like any other kid. I didn't have any special talent. I just liked to draw. Okay. Cars, houses. As kids will do. Funny stuff. 
whatever. No flowers. I, I drew no a lot career, of flowers. No. But my grandmothers kept telling me, you're a good artist. So I was like, I'm a good artist. Cool. And then I started looking at art books. I was like, well, what's an artist? So the first art books I ever looked at were like these abstract expressionist, big, crazy abstract paintings. I was like, oh, this is art. And I started doing big abstract paintings when I was a little kid. And I didn't have a lot of supervision at my mother's house. So at my mom's house, I could do whatever I wanted. I painted my room. I'd stay up all night making these crazy big paintings that were very uh, expressionistic and like textural and just in exploring this idea of what is art. And then I started seeing other art. And, you know, when I was a kid, Picasso was the most famous artist in the world, mm -hmm. which is funny because you'll talk to people now, you're like, you know, some kid, you know who Picasso is? Uh, I'm like, wow, that blows my mind, you know? Yeah, because that Just was because like the artist as I grew up. Picasso dominated whatever, the visual landscape when I was a kid in the 60s and the 70s. And it's kind of interesting. And also, because I witnessed that, I also saw the influence that that work had on other people and, uh, you know, to see, you know, and also then I took some art history classes and I also just started, as I got older, I read more and more and more about, but, you know, the thing about art history is you will learn what there are books made of. So whatever artists got coffee table books made, those are the art, like you, those are the artists you'll know about. When I was a kid, there was no internet. There was a library. That was it. Mm -hmm. So who were the most famous artists in the world? There's all these guys well, you know, the Impressionists, there's ad nauseum Impressionism books. I guarantee you can go into any thrift shop in any city, anywhere, and you can find an Impressionist art book. Uh -huh. They were just cranking that shit out. Right. But I bet there was all kinds of artists that no one even knows about. Uh -huh. And then there's also, of course, there's all the indigenous art and the folk art. Uh -huh. Anyway, but I do have a grasp of art history, although I am self-taught. And... But the way that it started was I started in that realm. And so my, my, I cut my teeth doing big abstract paintings, which was actually a great foundation as an artist because every one of these beautiful paintings that I see that you've done in this house, they are, it's a composition, an abstract composition before I even get into whatever symbolism and fun characters and cool new shit that you figured out, whatever. Like that's all there. And I, I always love to see a new painting because I'll be like, oh, look, he's doing a new thing. You know, since I'm a painter, I notice it, right? Uh -huh. But I love your work just on an abstract level. It's beautiful work. You're, you're yeah. doing beautiful layering. So that's how I learned how to paint. Mm -hmm. I taught myself by playing with layers. What age is this? Like when you started painting... 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. So you just started... I was painting big abstract paintings with torn up paper and all this stuff when I was like 16, 17. Uh-huh. So you, at no point you were like, oh, I got to go to school to learn how to do this because you were just Well, yeah, that, that did happen. Um, what happened was my grandfather was this amazing, amazing man. He was a mechanical engineer. He was friends with the youngest guy to ever graduate from Art Center College of Design. I'm sure you're aware of it. Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. That's the, that's the art school you go to if you want to design cars. Okay. You want to do product design. You don't want to learn how to make salad, dressing, bottles, whatever. Commercial art, okay. illustration. That's what the school to go to. At least when I was a kid, that was the number one school in the world. Nice. Art Center. Happened to be in the same city I was living. Uh -huh. And, you know, there was other. You get kids from Japan coming to Art Center to learn car design. Anyway... 
he said, that's the school you got to go to if you're going to be an artist. And I'm like, I already, I, when I was in high school, I got a scholarship to take figure drawing classes at Art Center. And I'd been to Art Center and I knew what Art Center was about. And I was punk rock. I was not into art. I was not going to be a commercial artist. No interest at all. Zero. I'm not selling products. I was fully rebelling against everything. I had no interest in going to school at all, actually. And anyway, I went up to my grandfather. It's really cool. He took me up to my portfolio. We went up there. They said, your work is good. You, will, you, you are good enough to go to school here. And we accept you, but we highly recommend that you go to junior college for two years because you have a C average. And this is going to be a really you know, difficult academic workload. And we recommend a lot of people do this. So that was the recommendation. And actually, the woman I had kids with, same recommendation. And she was like insanely talented in a traditional sense. You know, when you have a, a young person who just right out the bat, they're drawing things in perspective with the light side and the dark side. They just see things in that way. And they make, those are the people that are called artists. People drawing squiggly lines are not, oh, you're an artist. No. Every classroom has a couple of people that are gravitating towards representational imagery. And those are the people that are called artists. And those are the people that become artists. Yeah. Right? That's anyway, <laughs> so what happened was I had no intention of going. And I was actually, I had got myself a job on a tall ship in Florida. And I was going to hitchhike to Florida. And I was going to sail around the world. That was my that was my dream. Yeah, that's so cool. I was going to sail around the world. I didn't know how to sail, though. I had read all these books about people who sailed around the world. That, as a kid, I collected nautical antiques. Uh. Anyway. First day of school at Pasadena City College, I, I was going to leave in a week. I was going to hitchhike to Florida. I had new K-Swiss tennis shoes. I was done. I had my bag packed, ready to go. First day of school, I decided to go anyway for the first day of school at junior college, at Pasadena City College. First day of school, I met the woman that I ended up having kids with. And on the first day of school, her best friend, I was really, really shy. I was 17, I think. This... Uh, this girl comes up to me. I saw these two girls. I really noticed them because they were mod and I was punk. And back then, that wasn't a thing. Like What's mod? Mod, like uh, the specials, Selector, you know those bands? Okay, yeah, yeah. The yeah. whole mod, English mod scene. Okay, cool. Quadrophenia. So it's kind of like... Scooters and trench coats yeah. and that whole... Whatever, the classic mod. They, were that, they had that vibe. Mm -hmm. And I was the typical LA punk rock guy. Mm -hmm. um, so I noticed them because we were the only, you know, it's not like everybody was doing that at that time. It's funny because when people look back at the 80, you know, early 70s and the 80s, it's all this cool shit. It's like, yeah, we were rebelling against all the crap, but it was the crap was dominating. You know, it's just like when, you know, if you go back to the 60s, you always see all this psychedelic shit and these hippies. They were a minority. People had crew cuts in the 60s. It wasn't until the 70s where everybody was running around with long hair, mm -hmm. guys at least. Right. Anyway. Easily sidetracked. So, no, this, uh, this is interesting to me too. I, I love to learn so about I mean, the culture from people who are there experiencing it. This girl comes up to me with a handful of trash of all things, and she puts it in my hand. She goes, "Do you know where the trash is?" And I'm like, "Because I was really shy. I never would have met them on my own." She just put trash in your hand. She had a handful of trash, and she's just like, "Here, you know the trash." Are, are, you the, was, are you the garbage can or what? Yeah, it's funny. I was like, uh -huh, you know, and so that's how we met, though. And I really liked her friend. Christine. So and anyway, so first day of my first painting class, right? At junior college, Mr. Bond. 
And I, yeah, I was enjoying myself. And the three of us started hanging out. And then that week passed. And I was like, and I hadn't had sex with anybody yet either. So I was really into this girl. Like, I really liked this girl. And she really liked me. And we ended up having sex. And we ended up becoming my first girlfriend. And we were both living at home. And then eventually, we had a kid. Not too long after that. But anyway, so I ended up not hitchhiking to Florida. I ended up taking Mr. Bond's class. Learned a lot. It was a painting class where... You do a photorealism piece. You do a pattern painting. You draw a still life. You do, you know, whatever. That was cool. I enjoyed it. I like painting all that stuff. The woman that I had kids with, Christine, she's an incredible painter. She's always been just like this genius savant painter. And she really took to the photorealism. And she's just like, bah, 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 bah. It's cry. she does still, she just does these incredible paintings. Anyway, I, I was... I gravitated more towards primitivism myself. But so basically what happened was we went to junior college for like a year or something. And at one point she came and said, hey, guess what? What? I'm pregnant. I was like, oh, wow. And I was shocked and scared, but I was also like, cool. I was into it. What age were you? Maybe maybe eighteen. Uh-huh. I think I was eight, I was eighteen. I think I, I I had turned eighteen, and we were both living at home. Going the idea is that we were gonna like transfer. I was never gonna go to art center. I was just like, it's funny how my life it's always been very spontaneous. It just you know. <laughs> anyway, so two weeks before my daughter was born, I got into a, a motorcycle accident. And I had casts on all my limbs, near fatal accident. My right hand, which is the hand I paint with, totally crushed. Asphalt abrasions. My whole body covered with ground in asphalt. Asphalt. And um, I was in a wheelchair for a good amount of time on crutches for over years. Having surgeries and all this and that. So while I was in the wheelchair, actually, or... On crutches, Dylan was born, my son. And so needless to say, neither one of us ever went back to art school uh, or went to school in general. So you only went to school for like a semester or two? Yeah, like a year and a half of junior college uh, where I basically just took all art classes and one, uh, I took two art history classes that were really good. And I, I don't remember who that teacher was, but he was excellent. And it was really, really good to learn, you know, a basic story, European, of, you know, cave painting to the present time. Uh-huh. You know, that basic kind of yeah, whatever. the classics. But, you know, of course, there's things, there were things going on all over the world that haven't been documented that Western civilization didn't document and that we don't know about, mm-hmm. right? And, well, it, you know, people that have lived and lived and lived and lived and lived, and they lived... as one with nature in a jungle or wherever, and they didn't make stuff. They just made what they had and what they needed, you know, and how they lived, even temporary housing, you know. But those people, you know, where do you find them in history? You know, they didn't make books. And, but anyway, so that's how the whole thing started. 
when would you say your art turned more in the direction that you're going in right now? Or was that like a process that took decades? Well, I had a very folky style. And I was really into folk art in general from all over the world. What, what's the definition of folk art for those? Folk art, is, you know, it's like you could say it's regional. You could say, you know, like Mexican folk art comes from, a, you know, a certain kind of mask might come from a certain family in a certain village in Mexico. And they've been doing it for generations. And it's evolved over generations. It's cultural. So it's kind you know, of like, like Czechoslovakian folk art. So it's kind of like saying world music. World you music could, is just like but a, all over the world, every culture had its own art, and right. a lot of it is the same. Okay. You look at it, you're like, that's Czechoslovakian folk art. It looks like Mexican folk art, right? And it's a, it's a fascinating thing to always, you know, African folk so art. So what about tribal? That's how I try to like people are like, oh, you're some people try to find my art. It's like, oh, your art's very like. Aztec-y, Mayan-y, Inca-y, and I'm like, it's just I tribal. Think, I like, don't think your art is that at all, but you do use yeah. images of pyramids and maybe a, a Mayan warrior or something might be in your work. doesn't make the work. The painting does not look Mayan. Not, <laughs> I don't think. Not, not to me, but that's think. how people read it. So I'm just saying like, just tribal I mean, in the, general. I can see some pyramids right there on a painting of yours. You know, it's like, but that doesn't make the painting... It doesn't look Mayan to me, right. but I see the influence of that culture, of that. So, and, you know, would you say the art, a folk art, has some relationship to tribal art? But there's a lot of definitions. For example, what's American folk art? American folk art is graffiti and hot rods, right there, bam. Lowriders, all of that. No culture. No paintings of farmers. Sure. That's also folk art. So when I was doing the House of Blues, they were collecting African American folk art. Right. Uh, and a lot of times when you get into outsider art and all of that, like I'm self-taught, I don't have any training. Do I consider myself to be an, an outsider folk artist? It's like not necessarily. I'm not naive. So people love to find the guy who is totally naive and he's painting this crazy shit. Right. And there and there has an appeal because I'm uh, not that guy because outsider <laughs> technically means the art done well, by crazy people no, or uh, by originally outsider is, outsider meant outside of the art establishment. Uh, okay, so like lowbrow came out of highbrow. So your work does fit into you know traditional lowbrow as we see it started what in the '80s. That term was coined in the '80s. I came out of La Luz de Jesus Gallery. You know, Robert Williams, that whole scene came out of that. This is the kind of work that they, your work would be shown. Now, obviously, you're part of the psychedelic visionary art movement, but you could also call that as being a part of the lowbrow art movement. Has Alex Gray and Allison Gray, have they been recognized by high art? I don't know that they have. It's weird. You know, it's, that it, battle it, it, that they... They're, they're, and fuck high art... They do what they want. They do right. their own thing, and that's awesome. Right. More power to them. Like, who wants to be part of who that cares? snobby world of art that thinks they're better than other movements? Well, they're whatever. all different. But it's, it could be like what we were talking about before, Picasso. That's high art. That it, That's, you know, $6 million paintings. So that world, you know, how who gets in the museum and who doesn't? So it's just like a perspective. It's but not the thing is, lowbrow art is now also become highbrow art in many regards. It just depends on where you are in the movement. Or in the in the scene in the culture when I'm, I, I'm sure when Robert Williams' paintings can't be cheap. Well, those are you know those are 
they are they are they're they're it's good art it's yeah. high quality art and i mean his whole thing or part of his whole thing was you know he really so he went to art school or he or he he came around at a time when you know in part of his whole the comic book art and all that when you know abstract art was all the rage and he was like fuck that shit that's bullshit any kid could do that so he's one of those guys mm-hmm. which i never i never jived with at all Actually, it's funny. My first art show that I ever had at La Luz Daisy's Gallery was a show with Robert Williams. And Robert Williams was like, who the fuck is this guy? At one point, which was good because this was at the era, this was like 1984 or something. Or maybe it was, no, maybe it was later than that. But this is when, you know, Robert Williams did this series of these insane masterpieces. Do you know his work? Yeah. Okay, so he, you know, before he did like he did these other later series that were like repetitive, you know, on a theme, you know, busting out these like smaller series. But before that, he did these big, one-off, crazy psychedelic, super incredible masterpieces, like mind-blowing shit. That's the era. Those are the paintings that he showed was showing that year at La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Uh-huh. If I would have been in that show, I would be so outmatched. It's just like. I, you know, I was a complete amateur at that point. Just, you know, that's not, you, you don't pair those two people in an uh, art show together at all. So why did that happen? Well, I don't know why it happened, but it's funny because then, you know, some, you know, calmer has prevailed and uh, Billy Shire, who was the first person to buy my art, he was like, we're going to give you another show. And I was, I was paired up with a guy who made these big robot pieces out of found objects and stuff, amazing stuff. Anyway, that Robert Williams show, though, was incredible. I helped hang it, and I was blown away by it. I was hugely influenced by it. Actually, at that time, I was painting psychedelic, cartoony, kitschy stuff. Crazy cars, weird monsters. Uh-huh. You would know, you'd be like, what? And, yeah, I kind of just... You know, on my journey of one thing leading, you know, I just dropped it. I became less interested in those things for whatever reason. And I also was and have continually embraced like a kind of, I like primitivism. I like the way it feels. I like to make it. I like the way it looks. And I like to allow myself to make primitive things. Although it's interesting because a lot of times if you want to make a living as an artist, I mean, you can make whatever you want. People won't buy the primitive stuff. They're like, oh, I could do that. I'm like, yeah, sure you can. Knock yourself out. But you know what I mean? Like, so it's interesting. But it's like a vibe, what you do. I make, it's, it's not even like about like, look how complicated or or polished my technique is. Not, not that you, No, you, but it, for it, sure. It, it's you know, look, your work is amazing because of what it is. I love all the themes, I love the ideas, I love the fun. You know, right away, the, 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 the longest running thing that I like about your work is that you're not afraid to be like this. Is, I'm not afraid to have fun. I'm okay with that, which is cool. But you also get into all kinds of wild shit. And, and, you know, and I appreciate that too. But like, for example, somebody that uh, Kenny Scharf is somebody that when I was a kid, I was in my 20s, I had like taken a television and covered it in toys and Christmas lights and shit. And a friend of mine came over and said, oh, cool, like Kenny Scharf. And I'm like, what's that? He's like, Ken, you don't know who Kenny Scharf is? I'm like, no. Brought over a magazine uh-huh. with Kenny Scharf when he, you know, with the big Cadillac 
uh-huh. full of toys and the crazy paint job. And I was like, yeah. oh, this is sick. It's and there fun. was a TV in it covered with shit. I'm like, that's weird. Because yeah. I had never seen that before. And But then I, I learned about Kenny Scharf. And Kenny Scharf was, you know, contemporary with Keith Haring and Basquiat and that whole scene in the right. 80s. He's a legend. Yeah. And I really liked what he had to say about art. He was all about, I'm going to have fun. And right. that's okay. And I really appreciated that because... Um, at that time in my life, in my 20s, I was kind of like tortured artist. Because, <laughs> you know, that whole thing about being programmed and you learn about, well, what is art? Because you're just figuring it out as you go. And it's this whole thing about b- tortured art. The tortured artist is huge. And, and the whole thing about like, do I have to make the next significant move in modern art? Do I have to move art? one more notch to be legitimate. Right. And you, you know, I know a lot of, I've met a lot of artists and I'm sure there's a lot out there and that's the road they went down, you know, they, you know, whatever conceptual art they got into and like, yeah, but nobody what, gives but, a fuck. But what is let, let me, turning it the next notch is the question. Well, so are you going to be recognized in art history? It's like the grays are on that path. They're like, we're here. We, we, we're moving, we're moving uh, art history, we're participating. Well, maybe to our, to, in our opinion, but maybe the MoMA, well, whatever. They've able. they've they've created their own temple. Yeah, they they are they have done it. They are doing it. It's great. Right. But anyway, in in the, so you could spend your whole life as an artist miserably trying to be recognized or move. And I think it's important that people want to move art. You know, politically, socially, whatever. That's that's great, you know, and and I'm interested in that too. But when I was in my 20s, it was like a weight on me, and that whole thing, that whole romanticized, tortured artist thing. You want more coffee? No, I'm good. But I had this realization, and I was kind of like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I I literally chose, I'm not going to be a tortured artist. And I decided I was going to enjoy myself and make whatever I wanted. Right, and I've been having a great time ever since. Fuck yeah! So, so that Kenny really, Sharp was a part of that. I, I love Kenny Sharp. I've never met him. Uh, my friend. And I met him one time too. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was really funny. Cool. I made him. I uh, I made him. I took a metal like toolbox and I painted it and I put uh, paint pens in it and I gave it to him. Cool. Where in so, New York or something? No, in L.A. He was in Pasadena. He was like doing something. I think it's called the. Um, Pasadena, Pasadena Museum of California Painters or something like that. It's, it's some random uh, museum of Pasadena where he did a bunch of work. I think they painted over it, actually, oh, in was. the parking lot. But he also had a show there. And I couldn't believe it because it was a show of his trash stuff, which I had not even seen, mm. which I was also doing, and I'd never seen. I was just like, man, I'm on a similar parallel with this guy. Uh-huh. It's weird. So uh, that's awesome. Yeah. What do you think is moving? I, I love what all the things you're saying. It's super interesting and, and you know, it, it, observing the world of art and what is high art and low art and what is moving art forward. Because, for example, you were saying you were doing uh, art that would be more or less uh, lowbrow, Robert Williams kind of style, cartoony realism. Well, I came and, out of that gallery and, where that was... That term came from. Right. La Luz de Jesus. Yeah, La Luz de Jesus was at the epicenter of lowbrow art. Right. 
and, and still is, I would say. Um, but now you do something that is like simpler. But who is to say that something that's simpler or more tribal or more well, roots to not be moving culture forward? Is, is being rootsy and tribal and simple less good or advanced as somebody who has a super detailed, yeah. complicated, realistic painting? Well, what I'm doing is not easy to do. It is... Like, for example, what I painted in the tattoo shop, you can't just do that. Right. There's years behind it. it there's a, it's a high level of skill, right? It's a style. But what it, it's not moving art any forward because in the world of art, and something, another thing that I reveled against, uh, you know, the, a dirty word, something you don't want to be, is decorative, right? And so I decided to embrace that. I'm like, fuck you. I'll decorate whatever I want. So when you, but, you know, decorating a whole house, the whole outside of a house creating the world you want to live in, that's the world I want to live in when every house is painted. So, you know. I love what you do, man. Like, I, I would have to disagree with, uh, you know, like... But whether I'm means. moving anything forward or not, it's not my focus. I'm just making what I want when well, I want. Because your intentions are pure. But, like, say, when I go to a festival and I sit in one of your installations, I'm, like, inside your art... And we're just sitting there and I'm looking all around like, whoa, like he fucking like, not only the paint shop is beautiful, the colors work well, but you're like turning bottle caps into details and, you know, creating these, I don't even know what to call them. With the, I, with I would the, say some of those installations that I did for a period of time are complete, amazing masterpieces. But if they don't, you don't get picked up by a museum and they're preserved. So what? That, that and I don't give me. a shit. But I'm just saying, you know, I, I felt like a lot of that work would hold up under any scrutiny in any any place where, where art is being shown, you know. And some of it still exists, but, you know, that's a whole... And uh, who used to talk to me about um, who somebody who was pursuing high art? I forget, I forget the name, but about, you know, festival art is going to hold you back. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm just, see, for me, I'm like, I'm showing art to 30,000 kids right now. That's all I give a shit about. You know what I mean? So one thing about making art at a festival is people do see it. If you want to show your art, like I never do, I I rarely do a traditional art show in a gallery. If someone asks me, I might do it. Wendy Lee Gadzik asked me to do a a show um, a year ago in a little, a little gallery in, in Yucca Valley. And I was like, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I dig a small gallery and they're cool. And I like them happy to do it, but I don't pursue it at all. Right. Zero interest. Um, I prefer making art that exists out in the world. I make it, I leave it. Um, that's how I show my art. So for years I did festivals. And the reason I stopped is because I mean, I'm 59. It's a crazy amount of work. You need a crew, you need heavy equipment, you need trucks, you need storage, on and on and on. And then the festival is, you know, I, I'm good. Like, I don't need to be tripping for three days listening to overly amplified music. Turn the shit down. Like, that's me, okay? Oh, Shriner, getting old. It's like, I never liked overly amplified music. You go into a beautiful place and have a festival and you just like would totally disrespect all the animals that live there, the plants, the trees, the birds, everything, all the, there's a whole system. that It's very, I used to have these conversations with Bosque from Symbiosis. Like, what are we fucking doing in Yosemite? Turn that shit down. 
Because people always argue about, like, I'd be like, it's too loud. And he's like, that's what it's about, you know? And, okay, I get that point. You know, the whole European trance scene, it's about, like, shaking your body. But I don't personally want to have my body invaded. No, and I don't, I don't like trip at, at festivals or mm. at all. I, if I'm going to like alter my chemistry, I'm going to do it on a mountaintop by myself, most likely. Right. That's, you know. So, uh, so just the whole thing is an ordeal. Yeah. That. No, I'm also doing less. It's uh, a great job, stuff. but you get tired of it because you've done it. Because people are like, are you crazy? That's the greatest job. I'm like, yeah, it is a great job. But that's when I started doing refugee camps in Africa and going to Lebanon and going to places like this is much more interesting to me than But, wherever people. And I think, I think festivals in the United States and all over the world have a lot of value because a lot of young people are introduced to ideas right. that they're not going to get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And you know what those ideas are. And I know what those ideas are. Right. And we could leave it at that. That's good. I've never used the word transformational festival. I don't know if you use it or not, but whatever. Mm -hmm. But will your life be changed in a festival? Potentially, depending on whatever goes down your throat. Yeah, that it, it, your life could your life could be changed in a parking lot. Whatever it, it, goes it, down it, your throat. It, I think it depends on the person because most people don't get a chance to like be surrounded by positive, conscious, spiritual people. Or at least you know, I'm generalizing a lot. You know, yeah. not every person that goes to a festival is like a gem. But there's gems, and you get to like meet them and be inspired, and then try to attract more gems in your life. Yeah. Uh, so you're not doing many festivals anymore? Uh, yeah, well, I started doing them again because I started a nonprofit called Highway Sanctuary. Tell me about that. Artist residency in Yucca Valley. We pay artists to teach workshops that are free to local people. Mm -hmm. That's the gist of it. Cool. So in order to fund that, we can do traditional fundraising where you ask people for money or you write grants. You try to get foundation money. That was the whole point. Uh, the whole point wasn't so that I would like single-handedly try to fund this thing. The point was that we could uh, try to get some of that foundation money that large corporations have that they get, some of them give to artists. And that's what we're working on. We haven't actually done that yet, but we're working on it. Um, in the meantime, I'm like, I do know how to make money by taking a large installation to a festival. So let's do that. And so the idea is like, we'll make... so. The, these two towers, these two 30-foot towers, I made with a friend of mine that we've made a lot of installations together. His name is Merlin P.D. Martinez. He's an amazing, he's a chef, actually. And I don't think he considers himself to be an artist, but he's one of these guys who can do anything. He's like incredibly talented with tools and skill. Like, he's an incredible welder. Like, He's the guy who, like, you need a hole, 150 holes drilled in exactly the right spot. He's your man. So together we have created these large installations. And um, so an artist named Dominic Snow, Elephant Man Sculptures, who does these renegade elephant sculptures made out of hempcrete all over London, all over in different places in Europe. We did them in Berlin together. He did the first residency at Highway Sanctuary. And what he built is was a structure, an installation that he calls the Empathy Revolution, the Love Machine. And what it is, is you go up to it, there's all these elephants and other stuff made out of trash, and there's a basket, and you pick up an object. It could be a rock or a pine cone or a toy or some found thing. And if you like, you can read this incantation, you can participate in this ritual mm. where 
you release all fear and trauma from your life into this object. Cool. And you really feel it. And you walk in and you place the object at the foot of the golden elephant. And you look around, you see some cool stuff. You walk out and you go through this trash curtain. And you, before you go out, you put your hand on a painting of a hand and you say, I am free. And you go out. And that's it. That's his installation. Nice. So that's in between the two towers that I made. So that's what we've taken to festivals like Art With Me, uh, Okeechobee in Florida, EDC Vegas. Um, it's funny, I know a lot of people in the festival world, and I'm surprised at the ones who didn't pick it up, who were in a position to pick it up, you know, because the, the, the way that it works is like if you make a donation to Highway Sanctuary, we'll, as a thank you gift, we'll bring our... Oh, our so installation, your so festival. So it's a just, write-off. Yeah. Right? So you can write it off. So it's great that Meow Wolf got involved. Huh? And, uh, but, you know, it's interesting, too. Festivals that, you know, I, like, did, have done the first of many of those festivals, you know, was there in the trenches before they became huge festivals. And it's like, you know, festivals that, you know, they do use a lot of visual art. But the bulk of the money goes into paying DJs mm. and other musical acts that are the big names. Right. And, and so many of those festivals I stopped doing because I was just like, I'm not broke and I don't need to keep making your awesome making you guys money while you keep yeah, you got there's a there's an endless line of visual artists who are so hungry to show their art, they'll come and work for you for free and make something out of pallets. Right. And they'll make something really cool. Yeah. I'm not that guy. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in the same situation because it seems like the, the bigger the festival, the less they want to pay artists, especially the old schoolers. It's like, dude, like, you know, I'm not that young. I'm, not, I'm young, but like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm older, so I want to pay my yeah. bills. And I, and I, I was like, also part of the scene of, so now every festival has roaming performers. We were the first generation to like do that in these current times, right? And I know almost all of the people who do that stuff at all these big festivals, right? Everyone knows now when you go to a festival, every kid that goes to a festival expects to see a lot of art and interact with people and do all this other fun stuff. Right. Nobody gives a fuck about the headliners anymore. And actually, I think it was, you know, uh, it may have been, oh, no, it was Coachella. Like, sold out before they released who was, you know, Coachella and also I think it was Electric Forest sold out before they released the headliners. It was just like... It's a general experience people yeah. are looking for, including sitting in your installations and seeing people painting around. And Anyway, it adds a lot of value. And if a right. festival doesn't have any of that shit, people are bored. Yeah, you can't just dance, 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 and dance, dance. Um, and, you know, I understand that young artists will do it for free because they're trying to get their exposure and get out there and get their momentum and make a name. So then they can charge. But when there's so many of those offering it for free, it makes it difficult for those who are charging to get yeah. gigs sometimes. Because like, well, why should I pay you when I can just get right. like, all this free? Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, whatever. An like, ongoing discussion about how the two big elements at festivals, which is the music and the art, the music is, I don't you know, it's not unionized, but DJs have agents mm -hmm. and there are levels. You know, it, right. they are organized. 
Whereas the visual art world is not that, there's nothing like that at all. We don't have a union and we don't have like, say, even a manifesto or something that can be like, hey, life painters, make sure to at least get paid your transportation and your food and a couple tickets. If you don't get that minimum, don't even do it because you're ruining it for everybody else that wants to get paid even a, a little bit. Um, well, yeah. What about sleeping arrangements? Do you demand like I need an RV or are you okay with a tent or you're like fuck tents because I'm I'm over living in a tent. <laughs> uh, well, the last all, all of these festivals I've been doing, I haven't stayed at the festival. Okay, you do hotel. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean EDC, you know, that's a that whole parking lot scene like and I don't know, I haven't actually I've never camped at EDC, so I don't know that. I've I've done it twice. But um Yeah, no, I will stay in a hotel or something like that. And if I have a crew, you know. I prefer hotels. It depends. I mean, I slept in tents for years and it's all good. Um, but yeah, I'm just not that interested in that. I mean, mm -hmm. so yeah, it's funny. I went from doing, you know, sleeping in tents to, at festivals to sleeping on the floor in a refugee camp. Right. And everybody else is sleeping on the floor. And, you know, oh, so what's this like, sleeping on the floor? Sleeping on a thin mat. That's what uh -huh. people sleep on. Right. So... Uh, uh, This uh, nonprofit that you, you built in the Yucca Valley of California. Highway Sanctuary. Highway Sanctuary. Yeah. Is there a web page that people can go and yeah. visit? Highwaysanctuary.org. And you take, uh, you know, some donations, I imagine? Yeah, we do. Um, there is a place to do that on there. But we haven't really hit that hard. Um, but we need to. We're, we're going to, we're, you know, we're still... I mean, the first, so in order, if you have a 501c3, you have to have a board, a board of, uh, a board of directors, right? Mm -hmm. So that means you need a president, a secretary, a treasurer. And so when I first, you know, it took like a year or more to go the whole process of doing it. Mm. And there was all this other work to do. Like the workshop space was a house that was full of trash, huge amount of work. And uh, I lost my first two board members, so a new board. But now, you know, we have five people on the board. Everyone's excited. We're all kind of on the same page. I feel like, you know, the workshop space is finally finished. We've had several artists come and make amazing pieces. And so it's, it's starting to go. Mm -hmm. um, we have some money in the bank that we made, you know, doing festivals. And, you know, we're, we're ready for the next step, which is learning how to write grants hiring grant writers, and just um, approaching foundations and corporations that give a certain amount of money every year to somebody. Mm -hmm. So you got to find out who those people are, and you got to mm. make an appointment, and you got to go in and say hello to them. Right. So I'm gearing up to be that person nice. in this next year. Right. So um, it's a 504? 501c3. Okay, yeah. I, I, I was starting to learn about all that, and it was so complicated. It's like, okay, I can't get into this. But I'm not the kind of person who likes to keep track of uh, bureaucratic stuff or anything, really. Uh -huh. So it's odd that I... And really, you know, it's the secretary and the treasurer that are, are taking the real load of that. But yeah, it's, it's paying attention to a lot of stuff I'm not interested in. 
So we'll yeah. see what happens. We'll but see. it's righteous. You're helping people. So hopefully some people who are listening into this are like, oh, I got the other piece of the equation. I want to help you out. Yeah. I want to bring some donations or bring people together that wants to do beautiful things. I myself, if I'm in California or doing a tour, be like, yo, Chris, stop by here. Let's do a little workshop. And, you know, we paint a mural together with whoever wants to join and add to the momentum of that. Yeah. It's just this, again, it's this game of creating the world you want to live in. Yeah. Well, so I think we're alive. The world I want to live in, artists are paid and info is free. Yeah. Well, everything should be free. Let's do it. Tell me a little bit about uh, painting refugee camps in uh, third world countries. How did that well, come about? Are you funding it? Do you do it in alignment with It was other all self funded and it was just. You know, it started, uh, you know, basically it was me having an interesting life. And that's all that it was. That's all that it is. Um, some people have benefited, but mostly I have benefited from the experience of seeing some of the world, seeing how people live in different parts of the world, experiencing different cultures. Um, yeah, a friend of mine, Mike Zuckerman, called me up years ago and was or sent me a message about uh, I'm doing work in refugee camps in Uganda and I've been doing it for about six years and I'm, in, I'm trying to you know acquire land and give it back to refugees and just different stuff he was doing. Mm. Would you be interested in coming and doing something? I'm like, yeah, uh, I am because around that time I was starting to hear more and more about refugees around the world. I was like, what is that, you know? I was really interested in what a refugee camp is. And right. so that's how it all started. And I went to, the first refugee camp I went to was a place called Nakavali in Uganda. And then we went to Bidi Bidi, which is a massive refugee camp and some other places. But it started, he had some contacts in a little ghetto in Uganda and um called Chabando, and those those guys, you see, you can't just roll into these places, mm -hmm. some random white guy. It's like, first of all, there's nobody in the, there are no white people in the ghetto. Yeah. If you see any tourists at all in that part of Uganda, it's like there there might be some part of the city where there's like bars and hotels. There People are there to go on wildlife tours or something. Yeah. I don't know. I've never done it, but... Every once in a while, you'll see people, or they're Christian missionaries or something. Uh -huh. Or maybe they're white people who grew up in, in Uganda, but that's rare. And so this whole thing happened where all of a sudden I'm, I'm in a ghetto, called a ghetto by the people who live there. The guys that live there, like, call themselves, we ghetto boys, and this is the ghetto. You're in the ghetto now. And this is like a neighborhood with, you know, dirt roads, no plumbing, electricity, Maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, some of the poorest conditions, but people are living. Uh, you know, cinder block buildings. And was so, it, was it friendly? Was it dangerous? Yeah, I, you know, the, the thing is, it was. You know, we, we go to this place. I'm meeting all these people. I I hadn't been to any place. I had I've been to, you know I've been to some really wild places in Haiti, and I've been to India a few times. I have. I've been you know I've been. I had gone to, um, what's the name of the place? Uh, Kibera in Kenya. I mean, it's generally considered the biggest like shanty town in the world. 
but the, places like that, you don't just walk into them. Uh -huh. You are invited by somebody and you have somebody with you. So people are like, who the fuck are you? Yeah. They're with me. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, they're considered dangerous places, but I never, I, fa I found them to be these like, you know, poverty is the main uh, kind of director of people's lives, but there's incredible community. People are full of happiness and joy and having a good time out in the street. Everyone's playing. Kids are out. People are barefoot. People, everybody knows each other. Everybody knows each other. Every single person knows each other. I guarantee you. Like, I have never lived in a neighborhood like that in my life. I've lived in neighborhoods where for 10 years, I don't know anybody in the neighborhood. They probably all know me because I drive a painted car and I've always stood out. But I know not all American neighborhoods are like that. But often you don't know the people next door, much less the guy on the other side of them. Five houses down, forget it. You never talk to them. You live there for 10 years, whatever. Anyway, that was something that I really thought was amazing about these places. And people were friendly. And who are you? And what are you doing here? You know, and just shocked to see you. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of tattoos. I got, used to have a big, crazy mustache. Uh -huh. I mean, kind of stand out. You know, people are already like, yeah. you look funny, much less you're white. Uh -huh. Like, we don't see any white people here. Yeah. On numerous occasions, little kids, babies, crying. Everyone's laughing. Oh, they've never seen white people before. Uh, what happened to this guy? <laughs> and uh, anyway, um, so one of the things that happened while I was spending a lot of time in this neighborhood in Shevando, what, you know, one of the guys, you want your house painted? Yeah, cool. Painted this guy's house. Really nice, you know. Guy next door is like, wow, will you paint my house? Yeah, let's go. Every, people in the neighborhood, can we paint with you? Yes, let's go. And it, next thing I know, I'm there for two hours. I painted like, you know, 12 places or something. People's little stores, their homes, whatever. People can't even, uh, you know, something that I really disliked was people would have uh, advertising on their house. It's the only way they could get their house painted. They couldn't afford to buy paint uh. just to paint the house. So it was painted, just raw brick, mm -hmm. raw brick buildings, you know, cinder block, gray. And we were going to go on, I was going to go on a tour where we went all around in different places, just painting with, with a, a group of guys, uh, uh, boy refugees and girl refugees, and paint together for free people's places. Mm -hmm. Hasn't happened yet. I still want to do You need an that. army. But anyway, it's like, why go to a refugee camp? Well, I didn't, you know, uh, so I was able to go to this refugee camp. Normally, you need papers, you need permission, you fill out all kinds of shit. Well, he'd been going there for several years, so we just drove in. We knew some people, we went, we went in. Generally, the rule for me was in the, in the ghetto and also in the refugee camps, the guys were like, you cannot go walking by yourself at night to where you live, when you leave, somebody has to go with you. And it's funny when you're living somewhere and you're there, you know, after a while, and I'm a real independent person. I just, oh yeah, I'll see you guys. And then um, I found out that they were having people follow me home without me knowing to make sure that I didn't get jumped or something. Uh, and you would hear about random people, you know, you, the way people get around, you know, you, you get on the back of somebody's motorcycle, you know, people getting, you know, getting jumped, getting killed, disappearing, getting robbed, 
whatever. You know, I mean, it happens. Yeah. If people think you have money and you're in a place where nobody has any money and there's no way to make any money, That's there's a good chance are. that you could get robbed. Right. So, you know, Do take you, your chances. But did it, so, uh, it, but I'm usually wearing painted clothes, mm -hmm. painted shoes. I'm usually like such an oddity. Yeah. People aren't thinking about ripping me off. It's kind of like I don't get tickets. You think like the cars I drive in are always wildly painted. Every car I've owned has been wildly painted. When the cops see you, they're just, they, 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 they see the paint job and they forget that, oh, he's, he's speeding or he, you know, he, uh -huh. he didn't stop uh, long enough on that nice. right like turn your, or your, whatever it is. Your peacock feathers. I, mean, I do, I, do uh, I don't break a lot of laws when I drive generally, uh -huh. but uh, except maybe speeding laws, but I find that people are distracted by art and they don't see what else is going on. So just the oddity of seeing me somewhere, I think, may be one reason why I haven't been robbed. Mm -hmm. So you, so being in these refugee camps yeah. wasn't difficult for you? You were chill? It didn't yeah. disturb well, you? you I, I never had any problems, but um, it, it, it's intense to go somewhere and live with people and hear their stories and see the conditions and... I mean, you hear terrible stories and everyone is coming up to you. Hey, man, can you help me out? You know, yeah. with their story and everyone's got a story. The people I knew in Naka Valley, you know, bulk of them were Congolese people. Walked out, walked out of their country to live so they could live. They had to, they left everything. Yeah. Walked into another country where they were accepted into a refugee camp mm. where they were held for a certain amount of time in an area Then they're released when they're given a plastic container with oil and a bag of, you know, grain or rice or something. And that's it. You got to build a place out of bricks that you make or whatever. Maybe you know somebody. Maybe somebody helps you. Maybe you've got something. You know, who knows? Like, it's super crazy. Um, I, I was in the middle of the night. We were walking somewhere in the refugee camp. Me and, and one of the guys uh, who... Uh, hung out with us all the time to make to help us from not getting ripped off um our fixer if you will uh he was like check it out that truck right there those are supposed to be supplies that have come in for refugees being sold on the black market right now mm -hmm. so i have witnessed that so you know refugees are uh not refugees but um refugee camp uh, refugee camps are often places of corruption And all that money that people are giving on the TV to whoever doesn't might, do shit. Might get to them or not. You know, the, you know, there's all these lame plastic tents with the whatever it is that you I, like blocked it out. This big charities initials on it. You see it in all the refugee camps. They don't do shit. Yeah. And you know, some you know really bad little like medical tent for thousands of people to give like shots of some crap they don't need probably. Right. Like. Really, like, if you want to hit, don't give your money. Don't give your money to anything, actually, because unless you really know the people, chances are you're being ripped off. All the telemarketing, it's... A, I said, for your charity. <laughs> hey, what, I'm, not, I'm not, like, going... I haven't gone out and asked any, for anyone yet. I'm asking. As far as that. But I'm, I'm just saying... for you. But I'm saying, like, if it's a big organization and you don't know what they do, look into it, because... Yeah. I mean, Haiti is famous for that. Mm. And I went and saw it firsthand. And, you know, I was shown by people, look at all these empty buildings. Mm. These are all just names of people who are bringing in money that no one ever gets. 
it's it's not like it's unknown, but you know, if you if you ever, I mean, I grew up with the Sally Struthers commercials with the little African children with the flies on their faces. You know, please send money to UNICEF for, right away or whatever. Yeah, I would say don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, the people running the camps are corrupt. Uh, I yeah, a couple of years after I started going to Naka Valley, I think the head guy was arrested or fired. You know, they found out he was, they were taking money. Of course, they, you know, everyone's on the take everywhere, all over the world, including the United States. It's the, you know, it's just a different style of corruption, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when you go to Morocco or you go to Mexico or, you know, you go to Bali and the cops pull you over, you just pull some money out. If you can't talk your way out of it and you're going to have to pay them. That's it. That's the way it is. It doesn't work that way in the United States. There's a different kind of corruption here. The corruption is way, way more sophisticated and bigger. Do you think that anyway, will change? I don't think that that's going to change. I mean... What if the consciousness of humanity the, the flowers? System, if the system crashes, then it could change. Mm-hmm. And I do think the system's going to crash. But anyway, um, so th- why were we in the refugee camp in the first place? Well, this idea that expressing yourself, investigation of self, is can be, you know, a first part of healing. So you're meeting a lot of people who've been traumatized. You know, uh, a friend of mine, William Butala, this young man that I became very, very good friends with at a refugee camp in Nakavali, he saw his family assassinated in front of his eyes. And he had his photographs of it. And he showed me the photographs, you know, his father's head blown off, you know, his cousin with a huge hole in the head. I was just like, Whoa. And he showed you that? Well, so if you want to hear the story, I don't know, it, of how, how I met, you know, people are constantly coming up to you. Just another young dude comes up to me. I'm an artist. I'm like, oh, really? There was something about him. And I'm like, oh, well, what kind of art do you make? You know, and he's telling me about it. You know, he makes art out of trash. I'm like, oh, I make art out of trash too. I'm like, I'd love to see your art. Where Can I see your art? He's like, yeah. Um, where is it? You know, and English is not his language. French, Congolese, but he's doing pretty good, better than me. So I can understand what he's saying. You know, you come to my house. I'm like, okay, when? You know, tomorrow morning? Where is it? It's like two hour walk. I'm like, okay. Then there's some people that I'm with. They're like, do you, they hear, oh, we want to go too. Okay, we're all going to go. Okay, cool. We'll meet you in the morning. Right. Later that night, um, these people that I'm with, they all get a chance. They're going to go r- ride motorcycles or something. I'm like, um, the next day, I'm like, hey, we're going to go. This kid's going to walk two hours to pick us up. Don't you remember? Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's like, oh, you know, like, well, whatever. I'm going. So I went by myself mm-hmm. and they all went and rode motorcycles or something. So right off the bat, and I've been there a couple times now. So this wasn't my first trip to Naka Valley. I had never walked for two hours in the direction that we're going. I never, I saw a huge area I'd never seen. I saw a market I'd never seen. He took me to meet his mother, who was my age. So in the Congo, these were, his father was a king, right? And that wasn't like, that, and that, all that means is they had land, they had goats, They had animals. They were well. I would say they were probably like the equivalent to like what a middle class American is. They had stuff. And so they were well off people in, in the Congo. They had a home. They had, you know, a car. 
And so he wanted me to meet his mom. So I go to meet his mom, and she's selling these people who had something. She's selling little pieces of charcoal in little piles in this market. She's got a huge bump on her back from where they hit her with, an at, with, a, with a rifle. Oof. They tell me about this. I'm like, wow. But it's interesting because she's my age. And I, he's been telling me you know, about his family and what happened. So I know this was a woman who had something. And I can tell, you know, she's got, she had grace. She had a lot of style. She was educated. And here she is stuck in this refugee camp selling these little piles of charcoal. And I was really pleased to meet her, you know. And so we, we continued on. He, he took me to like some people were in like a church that didn't have the roof built yet. They were practicing singing and he stopped the whole thing to introduce me. And I was like, eh. Went, took me to a place where a guy was making a guitar out of just some scraps of wood. Anyway, we get to this little house where he lives with seven people, right? His mom. Uh, there were two young girls there who were like, I don't know, cousins or like an uncle had made it out. Some other people, it, they were all gone except for, and it was literally like two rooms, small rooms that seven people lived in. I was like, wow, okay. I sit down. These young girls are making, they're weaving plastic bags mm -hmm. to make things. Weaving yarn into plastic bags and they're making other like purses and he taught him how to do this, and that's what he's been doing. So he shows me some stuff, and I see his paintings. He's got, like, two paintings. And I ask him, like, so do you have any photographs of, you know, your home where you used to live? He's like, oh, yeah. So he gets these photographs out, and it's interesting because they're like, see, now everything's digital. People don't really take photos anymore like they used to, but when I was a kid, everybody has, albums, uh, you know, dog-eared Photographs of your family or whatever. In your wallet. Yeah. So that's what these were. Uh -huh. Dog-eared photographs, stack of them. Uh -huh. He sits them down in front of me, and I, I pick them up, and I'm like, whoa. And I, you know, and I start to lay them out, and it's just, it's all dead people. It's his family that was massacred. That's so I didn't ask to see that. I swear, And he's like, when there's the house, you know. So now it's interesting, because for me, at least, when I, when I go to refugee camp, it's like, you know, it's it's a it's an intense thing to do. You know, it's an intense thing an for intense a person who comes from privilege. Yeah, you don't know. All of a sudden, you're like, and you're hearing all these stories. So I didn't realize that I had a, like a lot of walls up, yeah. just to kind of protect myself, just to get through the day. Yeah, you know, I was talking about how, how do you stay inspired? How do you stay open? There's a lot of denial involved in. Well, it just depends on how skilled you are how much grief you can hold and stay open at the same time. But that's, just, that's another conversation. But anyway, I, I, I immediately became acutely aware that I, I didn't realize I had done this, you know, that I had a lot of, like, I had like walls up because I immediately was about to like just completely break down. I started to well up. I was like, and I did, you know, I was like about to just completely fall apart because like, I'm like, he's like, that's my father. You know, and his father's head was literally like, and I'm like, and it's a crazy thing to see anyway. Like, so you now it's interesting because I was talking about like how violence is entertainment and that's normal. So you, all our lives, we've seen images of people's heads blown up and we think that's cool. We watch it. We go out of our way to watch it. But when you see a photograph of a guy's dad's real head blown up, you're yeah. like, uh. whoa. 
you know, and so I'm going through the whole thing. And I lay them all out, and they're just there. I took a photograph of it with my phone. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And I started to feel myself like start to, it was almost like a psychedelic experience. You know, I started to feel myself fall it, it, apart. It sensitizes you. My reality just was crumbling. And I was just like, well, I held it together because I just felt like in that situation, you know, I mean, it would have been okay. I could have totally fallen apart and cried. And I have cried many times uh, thinking about it and other things, you know. But anyway, we talked more and put the photographs away, walked back, you know, at night, dropped off. I met, you know, these, this group of people that I'm, I'm with and I get into this van with these people and what they were with like some group that was supposed to be doing something. I'm like, I tell them all the whole story. It was just like crickets. I was like, do you guys think maybe we could give them, help them out? You know? And it was just like, everyone was kind of like, I was like, huh? And I said to Mike, I was like, Hey man, what do you think about, I had never done this before. I was like, I'm going to like just make a post on Instagram and see if people want to send some money. Because so when, when talking to, to William, what he was doing, he was going all over the refugee camp on his own and teaching kids how to make stuff out of trash. Yeah. I love this guy. I was like, He's I, a good guy. the thing is also, I, I realized that this young man in his twenties who'd been through this massacre when I met him after, I realized, wow, this guy's my teacher. Because you know how you go through life and you'll meet people that are your teachers and maybe you're a teacher for somebody sometimes? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. You don't think it's going to be a young guy in a refugee camp. Mm-hmm. But his whole manner, his whole demeanor, his whole understanding of, he told me a story about it. I'm like, how did you start doing it? You know, he's told me a story about how he, so when he came to the refugee camp, you know, totally traumatized, family massacred, walked in with nothing. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to do. He started making stuff, and he realized that that was helpful. And he realized on his own what I also realized on my own, that self-expression, investigation of self, is the first part of healing, Mm. right? And because I also have healed myself through self-expression, and I still am. So I was amazed that he knew this and had figured this out. So I really, I, and, and so I talked to him about, what do you need? And he was like, I need a cart and I need like shade structures and some art supplies. I'm like, let's get that. And so I went on Instagram. There's a, you can find it. There is a photograph of him and his mom. Then as you go through, I think there's a photograph of the photographs of the dead people. And I just basically told the story and I asked if anybody wants to do this, like, here's my PayPal and I'll just give them the money, you know, and Mm -hmm. like four grand or something came in. Yeah. That's more than a year's salary. Yeah. So I started then this thing where every month I divided the money into a year's worth and doled it out every month. And all of a sudden they had, which is you can consider a lot of money. They could do stuff. And he started a school. He got a building inside the refugee camp that's in the first area you go in that's fenced off. And he teaches a class. And I went back the next year and went to the class with like 60 kids in the class. I drew on the chalkboard and, you know, clowned a little bit and drew. And we all made stuff. We made little structures out of cardboard Mm -hmm. and glue. 
It was amazing. This, anyway. is, a, this is a beautiful story because it's uh, an alchemical story of tragedy and pain turning to medicine and creativity and something good happening out of yeah. it. And I was having this conversation with Paulina today as we woke up and we we're once again reflecting on what's happening in the Middle, uh, Middle East. And she was asking, like, do you think if there's just like so much pain at one point we just kind of like give up and it's transformed into love and people just stop loving each other and it's like oh, that's a tough one but this is an example where through tragedy and a really negative experience this person just wanted to do good he didn't get bitter he didn't get like oh now my life is going to be about right. revenge and and hurting other people so i can get my energy back he was like no i'm going to be of service yeah he has a big heart he has a developed heart Mm-hmm. An open heart for whatever reason. Um, yeah, I've been trying to get him out. So he, he filled out all the papers in the last year to try to get a passport, to try to get permission from all these official entities so he can leave the country. It's like, uh, I, I'm like, fuck all those people. But that's the way it is. So the the, world, one of the yeah. biggest privileges I have as a white American male is I can pretty much go anywhere I want pretty easily. And I didn't really know that growing up, being, you know, I didn't know that until I started traveling. And then I started make, making friends all over the world. And you can't leave. Mm. Even if you could get the money, you can't leave. You can't get the... Or they won't let you in many places. People can leave, but you have to have a lot of money to get out of certain places. Uh-huh. Or you have to be able to... You know somebody. You can fill out all the paperwork, get the, you know, and there's so many... People, they just can't do that. And they'll never get the money to pay the fees to get the passport. Right. The, for the privilege of filling out all these papers, you have to pay. You know, right. It's like that here, too. But you take it for granted. It's like, okay, it's inconvenient. Well, that's, that, that's the blessings of traveling. It's impossible in other places. That's, a, that's the blessings of traveling and learning from other cultures and the limitations that they have and contrasting with the blessings that we have and what can we do with our privilege and, and uh, blessings and help in some way. So thank you for like, helping out that brother and those communities in general. I was asking you, like, was it easy to... Uh, uh, serve at a, at a refugee camp because I did it once a few years back and as much as I was like excited to go and happy that I did it I was also like oh shit this ain't no joke this it's is sketchy this, as hell. Is, this is a, 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 a tricky environment for a sensitive person to throw itself into my refugee camp was the most gnarly refugee camp in Palestine in the West uh, Bank and there was gunshots going off. Even the locals were like, kind of like, as much as I was there to serve them, they're like all like, you know, um, you know, not very happy to yeah. say the least. And I was just like, uh, I can't be there for too long. Like this is becoming too much for my system. And then I was like, I don't know if I can just keep on throwing myself into this situation as much as I want to help. I don't know if I got the... Uh, the strength for the the coolness to be in all scenarios without being affected or or even like emotionally hurt by places that are just so gnarly and it's like wow like i'm not strong enough to be there like for a couple weeks imagine living living there and um yeah it's a real real eye-opener for sure yeah but it it also going and traveling and going into places where a lot of suffering has happened has made me be, break down my own walls 
like going to Cambodia to Phnom Penh and learning about the killing fields and the Khmer Rouge and be like, wow, like real suffering and genocide and murder and death has uh, yeah, taught me about like, okay, like, I want to do something to, to help out. Like, you know, like here I am living in my bubble of, of happiness with normal human suffering. But in general, I got the opportunity to help. What, what can I do, you know, to help out? So I think it is a gift to throw yourself in those environments and learn about true pain and suffering. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you can do it, if you want to do it, you, you benefit yourself. That's why I'm always clear about that. It's like, you know, are you helping anybody? You know, I don't know. You do what you can, but you really you that's can. not, you know, you go to have an, I go to have an interesting experience. And, you know, and if you're going to go, you don't need to go anywhere if you want to help people. I mean, I started a mural project in my late 20s in LA, painting murals in inner city schools. Yeah. You know, there's plenty to do anywhere you are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, going to someone, a place like Uganda, for me, it's like I, I'm interested in seeing the world. And since I'm able to, and I'm not that interested in doing uh, traditional tourist things. And I am interested in this idea that self-expression, investigation of self, is a way for people to heal. I, I like to encourage people to express themselves. That's something I've done my whole life. Uh -huh. So I'll, that's what I do, basically, with people. Because you know how it is. People are like, oh, I can't draw. Or I'm like, that's bullshit. Why? why? What's going to happen? Uh, make a mistake? There are no mistakes. That's all misunderstanding. Make whatever you want. Make some lines. Right. Who cares? Art's this art. whole self-critique, you know. And, yeah, in a lot of places in the world, people are like, yeah, I'll make a line, no problem. Americans are really, like, critical because of the culture. But I like going places and making art with people. And so, you know, it's been a good thing to do. And also painting walls with people. And being and in sharing festivals the process. too, like uh, I'm, I'm sure you reach so many young kids in your own country by being in festivals and offering your expression there. Yeah, met a lot of kids, for sure. And now that I am technically an elder, or uh, whatever, you know, <laughs> not whether elderly. You, whether you like it or not, you know, you're in a position uh, that you're influencing people that are younger than you. So right. whatever you want to do, you know. Um, whether you like it or not, that's, that's what happens. Um, but you know, the thing about if you, if you know, if you're a white American man and you're going to Africa, you know, it's like to help people, it's just like you get into an idea called, you know, white saviorism uh -huh. and it's a slippery slope and it's something, you know, you really, I think need to be conscious of. Um, that's why I, you know, in general, when I'm out in the world doing stuff, I like to phrase it or characterize it as uh, I'm having an interesting life, uh -huh. just to be clear. But is it wrong to want to help It's not wrong, but there's a thing called colonialism, which, you know, has really fucked the whole world up. It, it has formed the world we live in completely. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, being aware of that. So if you're not from here, what are you doing here? And... How do you think you're going to help us? You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's that whole, it's just, it's, you know, missionaries. Yeah. I, I, I'm not into missionaries at all. And actually missionaries have been used for years and years and years to destroy cultures. And then after the culture is destroyed, I mean, I saw it firsthand in Borneo. You come in and you 
clear cut the forest and you grow rubber trees and you grow palm oil and all that stuff. Missionaries are used. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of sincere Christian missionaries out there who think they're spreading God's word or something. They may not know it, but there are other interests that once they come in and destroy that beautiful, uh, animistic, uh, connected with nature, they already were knew what was going on. You came in and destroyed it. Then the corporations come in and take all the natural resources. This is not like some made up, this is not like a theory. This is what has happened everywhere. It's happening now. Okay, but that's not you, Shrine. No, I'm like, not, okay. I'm, no but, but I'm, what I'm saying is colonialism, missionaryism, white saviorism, uh-huh. it's white people that do that. Right, okay. And that's what they do in this idea that they're going to save somebody or help somebody. Okay, so you're not saying... I'm not helping people. You're not... Well, come on. Like, that's too extreme. Like, to say... I'm just saying... Okay, I'm just okay. describing where it comes from, the idea. Sure. Why and, and, and that's great that you're so it's respectful. It's a real thing. Of course, that's amazing. I don't you're even so know respectful. if you can do go to another place and be respectful at this point. It's kind of like... What? Going up to a place and what? painting with people is disrespectful? No, but, I'm just like, saying... You're, you're not saving the village, but you're, 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 you're vibing with people, and that is a good help to yeah. people who don't have art. Like, I, I think it's too extreme to say, I saved the village, and I think it's too extreme to say, I didn't do nothing, I was just a tourist. When you actually were there well, yeah, giving entertainment and... They're and just vibes. ideas, right? And so, just I'm just being clear about that, because that is a big part of it. Right. And something that you, if you don't get into get in touch with that, then you're going to be one of those people who you think you're doing something? What the fuck are you doing? I guess it's a reality check. So it's good to have that. You too. really aren't doing shit. And nobody is really doing shit in refugee camps. I've been to them and I've seen it and I've seen what they're doing. They ain't do shit. <laughs> right. So I, I, I didn't I do like, when much. I, it's all just, you know, having an interesting life, meeting individuals, mm-hmm. whoever you cross paths with, it could be here anywhere. I myself also question myself, what the fuck am I doing here in Palestine, painting walls? They don't even understand what I'm doing. They think I'm weird. They, you know, am I, am I helping anybody here? But then also it's like, hey, like, yeah. I, 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 I'm not ignoring you. I'm here. Right. I want to do something in art. Making art is a ce- can be a celebration. It can, you know, it can also not be. It can be the opposite. It can be like a, sta- a political statement. Like, this is not a celebration. This is a serious statement. But that but was it my can also, No, I know. So it also can be like, yeah, people aren't, you know, how, how do you help people who have been traumatized to celebrate? And that's part of what you go and you paint a wall with people. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we know how to do. So cool. Let's go do that, you know. But I'm doing it because it makes my life interesting. I'm benefiting from that experience. How so about, that's how I, how I phrase it. How about this? Cultural exchange. You bring your own culture, you learn from their culture, you're exchanging culture. Noise, helping or healing anybody, we're just exchanging vibes from different yeah. cultures. I'm there cool we that. go. That's a happy but, medium. You know, the idea about healing, at one point in my life, I was like, I felt really good about like the amount of healing I'd done. And I was like, oh, cool, like I'm healed. And then I remembered, I was just like, wait a minute, you're intimately connected to all that is. All that is is not healed. Right? Game not over, buddy. It's like you can't separate yourself from the whole, right? And you know this from the journeys that you've taken. You can't separate yourself from the whole. That's what you learn if you take a myriad of medicines. The number one thing you learn is you cannot separate yourself from the whole. And so the whole is not healed. So I personally, with my own journey, 
with my own family and my own experiences. I've done a lot of healing. But then I realized at one point, it's just like, and that gets into this question about Gaza. It's like, what do you, that's why it's so frustrating because it's like, yeah, it's not me and I didn't cause it, but I'm into, I am, you cannot separate yourself from the other. You can't cut the trees down on one part of the world and think it's not going to affect the other side of the world. It's one system made up of a myriad of systems. Sure. This, whatever this is, this ecosystem okay. that we're in. Okay, so we... we including we, the humans. So there is no, we are healed. Like even, even like say I think it, I am healed it, it's forever. It's up to you, but you know, for no, me. No, no, but, but I agree with you because like the more I heal, and sometimes I get to a point where it's like, oh, I healed all my things. And the next day comes, it's like, oh shit, no, I'm still like far from that. And then there's the world and then there's humanity. And then there's probably even entities on the next astral dimensions and beyond that they also need healing in order to get to the next level. And as right. I listened to the to the law of one yesterday, which is like a very high cluster of consciousnesses being channeled to human, and even they are saying like, "Oh, we're very high up, but we're still not the oneness of absolute God consciousness, and we're still trying to work towards getting forward." So it's always the next level. So there's that's no... what there is to do in eternity, right? <laughs> uh, so unless you are the absolute God oneness consciousness you're on the path towards getting to there so you're on the yeah. path of healing and we, we never like really finish it on this dimension of being a human well anyways. you could say we are a piece of that right. whether you can recognize it or not in this life mm -hmm. but there's the, levels it's like refinement right but, but the, 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 it is good to have an intention to move in that direction and to um try to work through our traumas and bring healing for ourselves and to others if possible i don't think it's well, like for me that was you know like i said what is there to do other than grow mm -hmm. and um yeah would you say your art is visionary? You're in the world of festivals and you hang out with Amanda Sage and all these different visionary artists. You did art at Cosm. You're very tied in with the world of visionary art, but what you do is very different from visionary art paintings. Would you say you are part of that culture or art uh, movement? I'm not part of that. Uh, I'm loosely affiliated with it, but, you know, it... it, it it just depends. Like, there's all kinds of people that use the word visionary mm -hmm. when they talk about art, visionary folk artists. There's visionary folk art environments. There's even a book, I think, called Visionary Folk Art Environments. And it's, you know, the Howard Finsters, the, the people who are driven to make a crazy environment with their little yard and home. They mosaic their whole house with rocks or whatever it is, you know, those people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm one of those people. I'm just not naive about it. But as far as the, you know, I would say the, what you're talking about, the, the psychedelic visionary art, that's a very specific thing. And that's an idea where, and not, you know, everyone has their own way of doing it, but it's like you ingest psychedelics and you come back with information and that's the content of whatever it is you're making. Often, not always, I'm just saying, that's kind of the backbone of, the, of that group, Okay. So I don't take psychedelics and do that. Although psychedelics have hugely affected my life and my ability to heal and grow and do whatever. So it has had a huge effect on me. But um, my process is intuitive layering. I make a layer and I add another layer and add another layer. And when it, it's, all, it's all just feeling and there's nothing else involved. 
but I have been I have been you know heavily influenced by psychedelics. Um, but so do I feel like I'm a part of that scene? It's like I don't think so. Um, I don't you know I mean I have a couple of sculptures at Cosm, but it doesn't feel like I'm a part of that necessarily. I don't feel like I'm a part of that. Well, you're part of the community. They asked way. me to do that, and so I did because I like them. They're awesome people. Um, I, uh, I, you know, really enjoy hanging out with them and speaking to them, and I love to hear them talk. I learned a lot from them just watching them talk. I, we were on a panel together with them. Uh-huh. And that was when we the first Australia met. one. Yeah, yeah and, you know, um, I'm very comfortable talking on a panel about art. And part of that is seeing how comfortable they are speaking to groups of people. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think I'm a part of that. You know, I've live painted, I painted with Amanda Sage quite a lot, many, many years ago. Um, you did a mural at Boom with her, right? We did a, we did a huge mural at Boom. Before that, we, we were just for fun, we'd make canvases together, mm-hmm. you know, um, and with her, actually, generally, I think on several occasions, uh, she was ingesting psychedelics, and I was not. But because um, I don't, I, I like, I never paint on any. You know, I, I immediately lose any eye-hand coordination that I have when I alter my chemistry. So I don't know how people how people do that. But I don't. Often afterwards, though, you'll you'll have moments of clarity if you've been on a journey, and that's when you, you know kind of overview what just happened and integrate it into your life, right? Um, and sometimes you do that with a piece of art, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I do have visions from time to time. I'll, like, see something, and I'll go forth in trying to make that thing. It's generally not my process, but I do, every once in a while, I will see something, and I'm like, and I'll sketch it out because I don't want to forget it. Not so much lately. But because um, I've been busy with all this other stuff, but like these big sculptures, there won't there won't be a drawing at all. I'll just start. And I mean, something interesting. I did this fourteen foot bottle tower the other day. Well, however many months ago, in the middle of making this, I'm putting bottles in cement, and I'm going around, and I had this idea that I've never had before, which is to put sticks into the cement with the bottles. It's one of the best pieces I've made. So I'm, I start putting, collecting all these branches and putting them in, and it's totally different, and it's really interesting. And as I'm going, I'm like, I keep having this feeling. Like, what is that feeling? And I remember, it's like, oh, when I was in my 20s with little kids, I spent a huge, huge amount of my 20s making art with these kids on beaches, on the railroad tracks, and alleys, everywhere, in the woods, And we would collect wood and make stuff. And my son used to make these things called power vortexes. And he would make these assemblages that he called power vortexes. And I was like, oh, man, this is that feeling from doing that with those kids. Mm. The sticks. And I was like, ah, this must be a memorial for my son. Mm. So for the next couple of days, while I finished making this giant sculpture, and I realized this is a memorial for Dylan, I talked to my son. And... Felt him, and I had no idea that that piece was going to be a memorial for my son Dylan. I had no idea. It didn't start that way. Where was this piece? It's up at Highway Sanctuary. Okay, cool. And another one I made recently for uh, Tigre. Okay, yeah, he's also departed. 
they has departed. So okay, cool. Yeah, well, it, not cool. I have a, it, it's hard to like integrate they or them into you know I'm a, you know often not always people of my generation can't do it. Yeah, but that was such a big part of Tigre's sensibility, yeah. and very important to him to be referred to as that, and a big part of who Tigre was. Anyway, um, yeah, I started to make this, this giant percussion piece that you play. I had no idea it was going to be for him. Mm-hmm. And the second day I started working on it, I realized this is for Tigre. Mm. And you can now you can actually step into it and you play it. Mm. Maybe you'll see. I, it's brand new. I don't think I'm taking photographs well, of it. I, I gotta because I love banging on stuff. I gotta visit your your land at some point. I want to uh, <laughs> reflect on you about what you were talking about. Your art being visionary art, and this yeah, is so, just no, so, so. This idea of my process is generally spontaneous in the moment. Uh-huh. There's no. I'm not taking psychedelics and then having a vision and making it at all. Well, you're channeling, and uh, exactly. So, so it would be. I would say it is that for sure. It is a state where it's coming in from somewhere. You're allowing ideas to come in. And and visionary art is like a box, a label, a packaging to perhaps a stylistic, and the definition changes according to the person. But what a, a definition that I enjoy is that visionary art is the art that comes from the mystic experience. May it be psychedelics, or it may be in the flow of energy that then helps you transmit it. So on that sense, I would say your art is visionary. And maybe it's not the traditional stuff that uh, is done in paintings, but I'd say, like, say your pattern work is kind of on the same vein as Alison Gray's work. You know, she does a bunch of triangles and colors and shapes. Yeah, Yeah, so that would be parallel to that uh, branch of the tree of visionary art, you know, and visionary sculpture, like sculpture is a whole realm of visionary art that kind of doesn't really get, uh, you know, focused on too much. But it's really at the end of the day, I think all art is visionary as long as you're aligning with soul and channeling that soul further. Uh, coming back from certain ayahuasca uh, ceremonies. I understood that all art is ayahuasca art as long as you're channeling. That's why I was like, oh, yeah, a Bob Ross landscape, that is ayahuasca art. <laughs> if spirit is transferring through you, because everything is psychedelic or spirit in a mm-hmm. way, but just mask with this like physicality in a million boxes we throw on each other. So well, I am interested in this idea of channeling as I get more familiar with it, as I've gotten older and having the realization that yeah, it's all coming from somewhere. You're just picking up on it. Like you're not mm-hmm. inventing this. It's it's coming to you. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and so where I don't know exactly. But so it's interesting. Different words for it. Source, whatever. I don't I don't like channeling. Um, Sounds kind of a little bit pretentious. Like well, it's oh, a, a channeler. There are but, people who specifically are channeling like right. a, a being on another dimension or something. Right. So it gets you know it gets a little new agey. Right. So I don't use it either, but. But it is true. And sometimes I'm doing it as like, I don't even know what I'm that doing. That flow like, state. Like for me, like I'm just a cartoon character that's doing this art. And then the art, like I'm like a witness as everybody else looking at it and be like, cool, I did that. And then people are like, oh, Chris, Chris, Chris. Like 
not Chris, I guess I'm the guy who did it, but that's not even me. That's already outside of me. And whatever came from somewhere else, that's already, once again, mm. not me. I'm just a filter. So it comes with the filter of Chris and your art comes through the filter of Shrine, but the spirit is, you know. Well, so in order for that process to happen though, it really helps if you are in an expanded state as opposed to a constricted state, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes, you know, let's say you're going to a festival to paint and everything goes wrong and, you know, and then they put you in a puddle and the tent and it's just, but when you stand in front of that wall and there's thousands of kids and they're bugging you and it's just like, you gotta get it, you gotta, be in that expanded state, no matter what is happening, so that you can make your big masterpiece. So, you know what I'm talking about. I prefer a job with less people <laughs> than more, but at the same time, you can be of service simply by doing your art and people looking and they get inspired and it pumps them up. So that is a kind of service as well, or performance. It makes people happy, as much as the art piece itself. It's like, I got to see Chris paint this thing. So to some degree, I was part of it because I was there at that moment. Yeah, it's interesting to see, if, and especially if you're a visual artist, to see how people paint, how they work. Mm -hmm. um, last time I saw you at Art With Me, Art with me you was were the painting. Last one. I, I was just walking and I saw it. I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. So I, was, I watched it for a while. I was just enjoyed watching your process because I also paint. So yeah. it's interesting. So it's nice for people to be able to see how does he make this stuff? Yeah, and I like seeing you and your team building things at festivals. I remember, I think it was Boom in Portugal when you were uh, building your structures with this Asian assistant. and uh, Saravasti, uh, yeah, uh -huh. Chinese-American. She's an officer in the military now. Uh-huh, so interesting. And you were telling me that you were using the trash that the festival had produced so far and i'm like but the festival hasn't even started yet and already there's all this trash oh, yeah. so tell me about all the trash that's made at festivals and how it's important to make the most out of it just trash everywhere i mean if you ever get into saving your own trash which i do so you find out really quickly that you are using a huge amount of stuff and if you don't save it you don't know because you don't have space for it it just gets carted off, always magically disappears. And so even if you're just saving like glass bottles or plastic bottles and aluminum cans, let's say that's the only trash you're going to save. It quickly piles up. is a lot of stuff. It just blows my mind because I, yeah, I, I need it because I'm making stuff out of it all the time, but you have to keep it somewhere, mm -hmm. you know? So like out at Highway Sanctuary, there's just one huge wall up against a, a chain link fence where it's all just bottles. I'm just like, uh -huh. you know, there's piles of stuff. That's one thing I like about this. There's a place to keep this trash until somebody comes and uses it. But one thing about the desert out there is plastic doesn't last very long. Mm. So this whole idea about, oh, this plastic's going to last for 100 years. It's like, I don't think so. A year out in the desert, it starts breaking down. So this whole phenomenon that's happening in the world where the oceans are full of microplastics uh -huh. and the soil's full of microplastic, mm. Yeah, it's because plastic doesn't actually, a plastic bottle doesn't stay a plastic bottle forever. What happens is it melts. It becomes brittle and uh. it disintegrates. And I'm watching it firsthand for the first time in my life in the desert. The sun just breaks every kind of plastic down. If you have plastic bags, stuff, you can't use it. 
you have to have really crazy plastic boxes to store anything. So I'm like, even cardboard, but I, it's interesting out there, the cardboard gets like petrified or something and it lasts for a couple of years. But anyway, What's, it's a thing. Making stuff out of trash, you need a lot of storage space. What's the solution to plastic? Just not use it, recycle it. Do you believe in recycling? Yeah, you need to stop making it, basically. Uh-huh. And For uh, drinking Paper bottles. and glass is okay. Okay. Right? Okay. For, you know, before plastic, things came in paper bags and wrapped in paper. But isn't that killing trees? Well... Yeah, but you know, paper is made out of all kinds of things now, and paper is made out of hemp and recycling paper. I mean, like, what about glass? Where does glass in come general, from? Sand. In general, um, recycling it takes a lot of energy to recycle, uh -huh. so it's not like you know, it's a, it's nice to reuse things in a limited, you know, environment, but. Anyway, yeah, I think as far as plastic goes, they just have to stop making it. Uh huh. But there's people are making money, so they won't stop making it. What What are just these? Like, like wars the, make money, they won't stop having them. And so, I know, like it's it, all if we just. Could just see, that's why I say about the, you know you got to if, if if people could get organized, but it's so hard. And now hard, you know, it's interesting the idea of the phone. Everyone's got their own TV show now. You know, you think, well, this is a great thing. We can we can get organized, but it's like it's sucking people even further into their own world and away from, you know, talking to each other. People need to talk to each other and realize that that guy that, you know, has a different flag than you and has a different political idea than you is not that different than you. And he's got kids like you and try to have a friendly conversation. You know, that's something that I can do now. When I was younger, I couldn't do that. I couldn't talk to somebody who was radically... Uh, politically different than me without getting into an argument or yelling or getting mad or trying to convince them that I was right or something like that. I don't do that anymore at all. I try to talk about whatever it is we have in common and leave that per They know that I'm different than them. Cool. Well, that guy was all right. It's like, yeah, I was cool. Huh? You were cool too? Okay. Maybe we'll find some common ground one day. What? We all want to be healthy and live and be happy, right? Right. But it gets weird when you have a huge military that keeps invading. Yeah. And you I, fund, anyway, you know, on and on. Well, it's a long conversation. No, but it's an important one. And, and it I keeps think it's coming around. It's, I think it's important for us to use our mini TV shows to talk about these things or our perspective of it. We don't own the truth, but we have a truth that we exchange and that might yeah. resonate with other people who might not listen to it on the big TV screens and, you know, brainwashing programming systems. Yeah. Um, so, what is these microplastics doing when they get into our well, food? I don't know, and but I do oceans? know that I know a bunch of people right now. I know half a dozen people that are getting chemo right now. Mm -hmm. And how many have I known now altogether? <laughs> you know, cancer, whatever that is, I don't know. But a lot of people are going through this process of getting something called chemo, which is this devastating process. And, yeah, does that have something to do with ingesting plastics? I don't know. Maybe. Is there a way to clean the plastics from the surface of the earth? Like maybe some mushrooms or... Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, I've heard Paul Stamets talk about that. Uh -huh. And they have done those experiments on, you know, with spilled oil and other uh, 
different kinds of toxic um, like dumps where mushrooms are growing and taking out the toxins. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting idea. I'm, I'm, I am really interested in mushrooms and mycelium and I think there's a lot of potential in having an understanding of how that works and you know, people being involved in facilitating that instead of a lot of the stuff that we are involved in. That's the thing that we should be growing, right. pursuing, educating, you know? Well, the world seems to have a lot of problems, but in your short lifespan, do you feel we are advancing and growing our consciousness and becoming a better humanity? I know we, we, we're carrying on like a lot of the same issues, which usually stems from people misguiding the masses and money, but do you think we are growing as a humanity in your personal observation? In your own life? Hard to say. Um, yeah, I don't know. I personally feel like I'm growing. Well, um, you are humanity too. Some so. people I know, <laughs> uh, I feel are growing. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to measure hard that to say. when there's so I would people. like to think that, that it, I, I do believe that people want the same things. Mm -hmm. You know, and what is that? People want to be healthy and happy and enjoy their life and have their families and their children and people want to prosper. Yeah. Everybody wants that. Everybody wants that. So there's these ideas, though. And so people are willing to die for those ideas. So I'm tired of all those ideas that people are willing to die for. I mean, then there's things like and then and then there's. Mismanipulation of information. There's a whole huge media that you have no power over. You can't get in. It's controlled. It's owned. And they do what they want with medical information. And there's people who still believe that what they see on television and what they hear from an official organization is the truth. And for many of us have realized that we absolutely, that the moment you hear from an official organization, you know it's not the truth. It's the opposite of the truth. So there's a lot of people running around who are completely, and you know, this idea that, you know, oh, there's conspiracy theorists. They're not theories anymore. And if you think it's a theory, you can look at Gaza. What does that have to do with anything? Yeah, well, it has to do with, I can't believe, you know, people who, anyway, Everything that we know about it, who aren't there, we know about it through the media, right? And so, yeah, we might have people on the ground there, you know, friend of a friend or someone we actually know who's got a phone that still works. And we're seeing something that we're not going to see on any other me big media. Or it's not in America. Or opinions of why it's happening and why it should happen or why it should Yeah, you know, the president of the United States is saying that it's uh, that we support that? It's like, are you insane, dude? Well, yeah. He also said that, oh, those numbers are exaggerated. But let's not get into the details of that because then we're going to start like, you know. Well, it's an endless conversation <laughs> about how... Manipulation but, of the narrative of what's but happening. This is, like, how, do you, how do people get along, you know, and people want the same thing. But it's like people are believing and so having fear and they're being tricked into harming themselves Anyway, it goes on and on and on, but... Um, Do but, you have hope, though? Well, see, again, that's a choice. 
how do you want to live? So I like I, I, I'm in the pursuit of inspiration regardless. Yeah. I am responsible for my own inspiration. I'm responsible for my own reality. How this mechanism operates and how it feels is my responsibility. I, there's no victim. I can't, oh, I can't blame the government. It's like, I'm in charge of this. So cool. Now, I choose to be inspired. Inspiration, expansion, you know, is that hope? Maybe. Um, I prefer to be positive than negative. I'd rather think that things are getting better, although I don't always necessarily feel that way. I feel like from what the information I've taken in, the system that we're all integrated in is doomed unless it changes or fails in some way. And it, when that happens, it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be, and maybe that's going to be wars. I mean, it's already failed for many, 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 many people all over the world. I mean, Syria was a beautiful, ancient, incredible, self-sufficient place, totally devastated. Why, you know, and by who and for what reasons? You know, it's just like really, you know, and I spent a lot of time in Lebanon. So Lebanon takes a huge amount of refugees from all over the world. Where are all the Palestinians? There's a lot of them in Lebanon. There's cities that are refugee camps. They're not tents. They're cities. They're refugee camps. All Palestinian. You cannot walk into them. You know, it's... Anyway. But yeah, two hours away. Yeah, it was already the apocalypse. For people who are like, oh, the apocalypse is coming. It's like, guess what? For some people, that is reality. Yeah. You know? And so, I don't know. I don't know, you know? Um, It's all, you know, I don't know. I, I... Yeah, it's like, yeah, I do what I can to, like, try to maintain and manage my own emotions and my own reality as best I can. And so staying inspired is a big part of that for me. Well, not only you're inspired by you. Staying healthy. You inspire people. You inspire me. You inspire many people. You inspire a lot of people who don't even know who you are. That just look at your your installations, at your art. Uh, It's beautiful. And uh, I hope you know that uh, what you do matters. And, it, you know, even if it just matters to me, know, I, know that. I feel that it has value. <laughs> yeah. But I also feel that, that when extreme things happen, like what's happening, but it's always happening. It's, it's not like it hasn't ended at any time. There's yeah. always, whether people know about it or not, right? And that has to do with the media, right? So every once in a while, you might hear something about the Congo and then you're like, oh, yeah, you're, rem- you're reminded about <laughs> this ongoing insanity so that we have technology. Whereas it should be like, why doesn't the world, where's the UN? Where, where are all the people who care? Let's all go to the Congo. Cool. Uh, this, all this, these resources, everyone's going to get paid. The, whoever's taking all the fucking money, you know, the government, you know, you're gone. You're the done. Corporations. <laughs> All these people that are Congolese are not going to be the poorest people in the world. They're going to be the wealthiest people in the world. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's never going to happen. And the media is never going to support that. So people are always wondering, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. Oh, is it? I don't know. Reality is pretty fucking, it's not a theory. Mm-hmm. And the media is not doing shit about that. Why? 
because they're not in service of, it's not real. They're in service of fear and whatever, whatever it is they're doing, whatever distraction has to happen so that something else can be, go on somewhere. Right. They pretend like anyway. they care. Uh, by, anyways. Anyway, yeah. Uh, but I do feel that what I do has value. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy with my life. But um, Art's not pointless, and it could look like pointless once we look at the horrors of the, of the world, but we do what <laughs> we can, and, you know, may every person on this planet be in the position to just express their hearts, you know? Yeah. Well, I feel self-expression is healthy. It's good for you. It keeps you out of the hospital. You know, all the cells in your body are going to be operating better if you're inspired. It's just, you know what I'm saying? If you're depressed, if you're eating a lot of shitty food and watching a lot of shitty TV, you're not helping your cause. So it's good if you can, like, get into making some stuff. Try to get a hold of some healthy food if you can. Mm -hmm. uh, or eat less in general if you can, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Self-expression, though, for me, it's a part of, as I'm now getting into my 60s. So what happens when you get into your 60s in the United States, in your 70s? That's where it all goes real wrong. Uh-huh. And then everyone starts taking all these pharmaceuticals and doctors, and you get your, your hips replaced and your knees and everything's fucked and you're totally fucked. I don't want to be totally fucked. So part of not being totally fucked is staying healthy. Part of staying healthy is in, is expressing yourself. So express yourself. Express yourself. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Ryan. <laughs> Woo! You rock, man. I love you. Thank you for this conversation. And thank you guys for watching another episode of Chris Dyer's Creative Friends. Make sure to like, comment, <laughs> share, subscribe, all that boring shit. And see you next time. Blessings! Woo! Next episode, Mere One. I resonate with your work so much because it's street, but it's spiritual. What did you call it before? I call it visionary graffiti. Metaphysical or surrealism? Or? Metaphysical oh. surrealism. Cool. Tell me about your style. Um, well, you know, um, I've always been fascinated in metaphysics. Um, the higher thoughts, um, mm -hmm. the 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 perception, the perceptible realm that we are not necessarily physically equipped to interpret, but mm -hmm. our imagination can plug into this, and our higher selves know this. And you know, um, there are practices we can do to start to become aware of these subtleties. So please make sure to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Big thanks and see you next episode. Peace.